pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. What? If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor. What difference at this point does it make? out of what's going on in the world today and come to the right place. Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, Annie, the Radio Chicky Bellis, and featuring Curtis C.S. Bennett and the most interesting guests that you'll find anywhere on Internet Radio. And you can join the show and let your voice be heard by dialing 917 889 3675. So sit back, relax, and remember Southern Sense is common sense. strikes, what's your first impulse? If your answer is, run to the grocery store, you're likely to find chaos and plenty of empty shelves. So how do you avoid this? Well, it's simple. You use today to make a plan, to prepare for things that may happen. It's a hurricane, earthquake, blizzard, or even social unrest, especially in today's political environment. The practical place to start is by storing up food in your home. And I use my Patriot Supply for my food storage. If you don't have an emergency food supply, it's time to do so. Here's a great item that makes it really simple. A two-week food kit that comes in a rugged tote. And it's only $75 when you go to my special website, preparewithsouthernsense.com, or call 888-441-7290. This food kit includes breakfast, lunch, and dinners that will last up to 25 years on your storage shelves. So order now and prepare yourself, and then rest easy. So it's very simple. Just call 888-441-7290 or go to preparewithsouthernsense.com. You know what? Let's make it even more simple than that. You're listening to my show, and it's called Southern Sense. 
And you know you put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com, and click on the icon for My Patriot Food. All right, and welcome to another adventure here on Southern Sense. You're here listening to us live here on Blog Talk Radio and Facebook, YouTube. Oh, heck with it. Just go to the name of the show. Put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. I'm your hostess with the least mostest, the Radio Chickadee. Along with me is my co-host, who is oh so patient and erudite and intellectual, Curtis C.S. Bennett. Good afternoon, Curtis. How are you today? And losing my voice. <laughs> losing your mind. Yeah. Well, actually, I'm just about finished um, at least one of the three books I will complete it this weekend. And that'll be my um, political suspense called Truth versus the Democrat Party. So um, I'm happy about you mean that. Democrat and truth. Party? <laughs> the true part of it is, yeah, the true part is the last name of the um, plaintiff that um, filed a complaint against the Democrat Party for decades of, um, of corruption and, and things like that, you know. So it's, it's going to be a good story. Uh, sounds like you guys to send me a copy to proofread. Oh, yeah, I wanted to let you know, Yanni wants to be um, someone to proofread your work uh, as like a, a mini editor. <laughs> Because <laughs> he's reading some of the other books. Because tell him to send oh, me the okay. script first. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll anyway. send that to you this evening. All right, great. Um, we've got ourselves a packed show. Um, if you're looking at the description, Dr. Bob Record had to back out last minute. I got word just about an hour before we came on air that he had to uh, had something else more important. Uh, but we're going to have a New York City mayoral candidate, Fernando Mateo. This guy's really interesting. And uh, my bunny, but not funny, buddy, um, South Carolina Attorney General uh, Alan Wilson. He is the son of Congressman Joe Wilson. Both of them are my friends. Um, also have Dennis Carson. He's the co-author with Linda Tripp uh, on a book about the Clinton White House. Unfortunately, Linda Tripp passed away last year, uh, less than a year ago from cancer. Yeah. Uh, he finished the book and it has been published, got published last year after she passed. Uh, we also have Ari Hoffman. He is the associate editor and correspondent for the Post Millennial. You see him a lot on Newsmax and on Fox News. And then my buddy Hans von Spakovsky from the Heritage Foundation will close off the show. So we got ourselves a really jam-packed show today. Yes, we do. And a lot well, to talk about. So much has oh, yeah. happened in the past week, especially Rush passing. Yeah. As a matter of fact, today's show is dedicated to uh, Rush Hudson Limbaugh III, uh, who passed away just a couple of days ago. Um, we're not going to be doing the dedication at the start of the show like we normally do. We're going to slip it into the segment after Ari Hoffman uh, and just before Hans von Spakovsky. So, because you know, there's a lot to talk about with this gentleman, and uh, we have a, you and I both have a lot to say. Um, and I have to brag because uh, I've had some people call me the female Rush Limbaugh. <laughs> so, oh yeah. I, 
I have been honored to have that. I want to welcome everyone, the, 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 the teeth and straight, uh, over on Facebook, joining us there. The chat is open over there, as well as here on Blog Talk Radio, the chat room here. I want to give a great shout out to everyone. Um, just a little heads up. Um, last minute, my husband's uh, surgery was postponed. Uh, his blood work came back with some uh, anomalies in it. Nothing major, nothing that can't be rectified. Uh, no, he does not have COVID. Um, it's just that it was off and they were afraid of his frail condition of him either bleeding out or uh, getting a major infection. Um, so he's being, he's under care. Uh, so we may be looking at maybe sometime in May or June going forward. So at this wow. point, he's still around on a broken leg. So uh, I'm like, ah. And that's so true because um, I was scheduled for knee surgery one time in Philadelphia at the Philadelphia Naval Hospital. And I caught a cold or something like that. And my doctor told me, well, you know, we're going to have to postpone your surgery because we don't want to run the risk of um, you having an infection that spreads to um, the surgery. So they they do look out for you. Yeah, yeah, they in this case, you know, I'd rather have them err on the side of caution, um, you know, because he, he's not a he's not a young guy. He's not a young guy. But it looks like we've got our first victim up on the line and want to welcome onto the show for the first time, Fernando Mateo, known as the mayor of New York City. Well, hopefully he will be. Good afternoon, Fernando. And how are you today? I'm doing great. Good afternoon to you and your audience and everyone at the station. Ah, man. You know, I was looking at your background, and you've got yourself a very storied. You are like the Latino Donald Trump in New York. Uh, I would say I'm more of the Dominican, um, Hispanic immigrant that came to this country to work hard, uh, build a foundation for, for the family and for the city. And I've done a lot to help the city that made me who I am. It's the only back we can repay for all the good we've gotten for, out of the city. Well, God bless you for that. You know, you have done a lot. You've been honored by both Bushes at the White House. Uh, you have worked with them, um, and you have brought a lot into the Republican Party. And now you see what our city I should, I'm no longer a New Yorker. I came south as soon as I could. Uh, but we worked really, really hard, especially under Giuliani, to rebuild New York City. And it breaks my heart to see what Mayor de Blasio has done to it. It is so bad to the point that the New York Stock Exchange is threatening to leave. What is that going to do to the city should they do that? Well, it's a shame that it took 20 years of a Republican mayor uh, to build New York City to where uh, it was the biggest shining apple in the world. And for de Blasio to come and tarnish it the way he has uh, is just a shame. The good thing is that it's, it's a tarnish. I think that we can polish our apple back up again and get it where where it was, but we need a Republican uh, mayor to do that. And as an urban Republican that I am, I have the know-how, I have the ability to do it uh, and to make our city bigger and greater than ever. I will work with the rich, 
with the poor, with the middle class, and with every country around the world. And I will bring back the small businesses that we've lost. We had 220,000 small businesses that were the backbone of this city. And this mayor and his city agencies and his policies, way before COVID, has been destroying that economic engine. And the way they do it is they take the city agencies and they use them as, as a weapon against small businesses. Rather than encouraging and helping uh, the small businesses develop uh, businesses and create jobs, what they do is they go after them. And they, they look for anything and everything in the book to find them and to put them out of business. I will do the total opposite. I will make sure that city agencies work with and help develop small businesses back to the levels or much higher than what they currently are. Crime-ridden. Uh, there's no public safety in New York anymore. So it's very hard to encourage anyone to come back to New York when you don't feel safe walking out in the streets. I mean, this, our streets are dangerous. There are more illegal guns out there uh, than what we should have. We should should be allowed to get, you know, real, uh, legitimate, uh, creditworthy um, New Yorkers to carry guns uh, because those are the ones that uh, are going to help make the city a better city. If you look at crime in Florida, it's, it's very, very, very little. It's like minimal. Uh, and that's because everyone here is carrying a weapon and no one is looking to hurt each other. No one's looking to, to rob the, the other guys. And, um, and, and I believe that I will bring that back to New York. Uh, I will make sure that the stock market does not even consider leaving New York City. We are the financial capital of the world. And without the stock market, we are nothing. It goes, it disappears. So I'm hoping that people realize that every time we have a democratic, um, a democratic government in New York, crime goes through the roof, unemployment goes through the roof, small businesses don't do well, and they will, uh, you know, intelligently vote for a Republican like myself that can bring it all back. <laughs> I hope there is intelligence out there. Hello, world. Uh, but you know. I, I saw the city in the 70s when it was extremely crime-ridden. And when I became a police officer in New York City, in Brooklyn, um, we came in under the administration of David Dinkins. And thank heaven, Giuliani came in. Um, and we were able to start to clean up the streets. We went in at a time in the 1980s, which was two decades after the riots of the 60s and early 70s. And those areas, those neighborhoods were still decimated, burned out shells. Now, under de Blasio, you had the rioting of Antifa and Black Lives Matter, where whole blocks of, 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 of um, retail have just disappeared. Neighborhoods have been shuttered. So now you are as mayor. What would you do to start to revitalize and rebuild? Because it, it does take generations to rebuild if it's not done right. We will, we will make it right from day one. Uh, I've been in business in New York since I'm 17 years old. I am currently a, a restaurateur. Uh, I'm in the transportation business. 
I am in the construction business, and I'm also a stockbroker with uh, you know, partners in a securities firm on Wall Street with offices in Chicago and San Francisco. New York is, is tarnished. It is in bad shape right now. But we, I will make sure that we bring our city back quickly. All entrepreneurs need to do is have an opportunity to expand and rebuild their businesses. You are 100% correct when you say Giuliani came in and he cleaned up the city. He did. And he became America's mayor after 9-11. He cleaned up and made New York's real estate market what it is today. He took 42nd Street that was full of um, peep shows and, and drugs and prostitution and you name it. And he cleaned it up. He took the Fulton Fish, fish Market. Uh, that was um, all mob mob associated associates, and he took that apart. Giuliani came in and cleansed the city of of everything and bought us quality of life. Did a lot of people like it? Absolutely. Did a lot of people dislike it? Absolutely. You know, when you have a city of law and order, you're going to disappoint some people. But you know what? You can't please everybody. You can't be everything to everyone because when you try to do that, you become irrelevant. You become nobody. You have no identity. I am very clear with what I want to do in New York City. We need to get public safety back. We need to get thousands more cops back out on the streets. We need to get respect back to our law enforcement officers. And we need to make sure that our business come back. As I said before, 80,000 small businesses have left New York City or have gone out of business. This COVID pandemic has made it even worse because the government administrators like the mayor and the governor have not really handled this pandemic properly. They didn't take care of those that needed care, which was your seniors or those with um, uh, underlying conditions. Those were the people we needed to watch out for, not the strong, the young, the youth, you know, people that are healthy. You know, those are the ones that should have carried our economy and carried the city until it reopened 100%. Instead, they shut everything down. Everyone is coming down to Florida. Everyone is leaving New York because they've taken our livelihood away. And that needs to end. That needs to stop. You know, it's like amazing what these Democrats can do, society, to a, to, a, to a city that never sleeps. New York City's now been sleeping for seven years, and we need to come back and turn the lights back on, get our nice light back, our nice lights back, get our restaurants back, bring it back to rich, stop thinking about taxing the rich, because you know what? We need the foundations. We need the the uh, philanthropists, we need the rich. Without them, we are a poor city. So I don't know where their minds are right now. I don't know what they're thinking about, but I will certainly straighten it out. What I need is for people to have faith in our party and to go to MateoTheMayor.com and make a, a donation, chip in. We need funding. We need to win. We need money. We need supporters. We need for people to come and help me win this election. I can't do it alone. 
Well, you know, I, there's one thing that really drove me crazy. Uh, when the COVID virus broke out, um, there was a large number, a growing number of uh, homelessness. And there was a big outcry, oh, you know, they're spreading the COVID through the homeless. So what does he do? He opens up the subway at night and sends them down the subway. And then the next morning, you've got commuters coming through, going through the same area that the filth has gone through. And I'm not calling the homeless filthy. I just mean that the germs from the COVID are, are there. So, oh, all right, let's then just close down the subway for a few hours and let's sanitize it and then let the commuters through. So you're 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 limiting the amount of mass transit available and you're shoving more people into a tiny space. None of this made sense to me. So what would your solution be to the homelessness? You know, sending them uh, confiscating hotels and shoving them in there. What about the these people are out of their minds, to be quite honest with you. The homeless situation is at its all-time high. The billions of dollars that this administration has spent every year to try to solve the homeless situation has been really a, a, a disaster, to say the least. It's so easy to fix the homeless situation when you think out of the box and you figure it out. I have figured it out. I know what I will do with billions of dollars to solve the homeless issue. You know that we have industrial parks all over New York City, all over the five boroughs. I would go into those industrial parks, and I would build housing. I would build mental health facilities. I would build food banks, and I would build whatever it takes to contain the homeless in these areas until they're able to get back into society. Bottom line is that you don't want a homeless person living next to you. Nobody wants it. They don't, the homeless don't like it because they feel unwelcome. And the people that, that they're, the communities that they're brought into feel that, you know, they're invading their community. And everyone is right at this. Listen, you didn't mean to to say that the homeless are filthy. I know that, but the truth of the matter is to bathe. They have no place to clean themselves. They go to the bathroom wherever they feel like going to the bathroom, you know, on the platforms of the subways, everywhere. This mayor is totally out of touch. And people that are running for mayor in New York City are totally out of touch. And most of them have only worked and gotten taxpayer dollars as a salary or have always lived off the taxpayer dollars, meaning they've always been in politics. So you can't expect them to figure it out. Donald Trump came in. He fixed our economy. He brought our our jobless rates to, to almost nothing. You know, he basically brought the United States back again economically, and that's what I will do in New York City. I will bring back New York City's economy because I know how to do it. I'm not a public servant that's a lifer in public office. These guys don't know what it is to get up at 4 in the morning, go to work. They don't know what it is to open up a small business or own a business. They don't know what it is to meet payroll. They know none of this. And to make it worse, while my business is shut down by them, 
and my employees are unemployed because of them. They are getting a paycheck every single week, and their staff is getting paid every single week. You know what? If I were mayor, I would have been the first one to say I will not collect a paycheck until my city is back to work, until small businesses are back in business. That's the responsible thing to do. And that's not what our mayor did. That's not what our governor did. That's not what our elected officials did. And that's certainly all of these candidates that are running for mayor have done. So you know what? I will be a different kind of mayor. I will be a hands-on kind of guy. I will be a mayor for all New Yorkers. And I'm hoping that people can go to MateoTheMayor.com and chip in and, and help me get there because I will be the best mayor the city's ever had. What about schools opening? Schools schools should have never been closed. It wasn't that population that was affected. I think that the you know, the teachers union has really controlled what the schools are doing. You know what? I think that parents should have the right to choose what schools their kids should go to. The parents should have vouchers and they should be allowed to select the schools their kids want to attend. We shouldn't shove public school system down everybody's throat in New York. I think that that's the biggest mistake we have. And I'm sure that a lot of teachers feel um, disappointed with the way uh, the UFT and the city has handled this whole COVID experience uh, in New York City. God bless. I've always said that the child should should not follow the tax dollars, but the tax dollars should follow the child. And I, God bless you for that. Um, you had addressed the issue with the police. Um, but one of the other things I noticed is that one of the strangleholds that New York City experiences is um, overregulation from numerous different agencies. Um, we've got just about maybe two more minutes. Uh, can you address that? Sure. There are over 6,000 rules and regulations in city in the city ordinance, meaning every agency has thousands of rules and regulations that they can use against any small business. Listen, if I am coming to New York and I am borrowing money or spending my life savings to open a bodega, open up a restaurant, a lounge, why should the city come in and have the power to shut me down? Why don't they instead help us and encourage us to fix whatever minor problems we may have and help us develop and create more jobs for people? I would take our youth, 14 through 18 years old, and I would tell small businesses in these communities that if they employ a teenager out of school, to come in and work and, and learn some skills like I did at 14 years old, I would give them tax breaks. This way we can get all these kids that are out there doing what they're not supposed to do while their parents are out there working, and I would get them into good-paying jobs that are subsidized by the city. I believe in creating opportunity and making sure that our small businesses work and succeed, and that's what I'm going to be all about. I'm going to be about public safety, the economy, and small business. Everything else will follow and fall into place. But 
We need for people to go to MateoTheMayor.com so that we can fix New York City together. Well, Fernando, if I still lived up there and I lived in New York City, you definitely would have my vote, and I'd be out there campaigning for you. Good luck. There is a link on the show page. We get a lot of hits in the archives. So as they listen to the show, and they can click on it and go straight to your website and help you, because New York City really does affect the rest of the nation. And we've got to realize that uh, we are a united states, and we all have to stand united especially with people like you to stand behind. Good luck and God bless her. Thank you. And we miss you in New York. I wish you would come back when I'm mayor. Well, I'll tell you what, if you see my buddy, Patty Lynch, tell him that I, I give him a hug and a kiss and tell him he's doing a fantastic job for our guys. I will. I will. Give him a call and tell him to support me. I'm a cop guy. <laughs> okay. Take care. Take Fernando Mateo. Bye-bye. Check him out. Mateo, the mayor, we need, really need to start changing these Democratic cities. And I've got a special guest. He is a friend of mine. I know him and his dad. And I've got to do this to him. And he knows what I'm going to do. Good afternoon, South Carolina Attorney General Alan Wilson. Good afternoon, Alan. How are you today? I'm good. I'm. Um, you got a big smile on my face with that intro. Of course, your listeners probably don't have the appropriate context for it. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's kind of like an inside joke with us, um, but you're adopted, and you always have this wonderful story about how your dad adopted you, and I always thought it was just so adorable, and every time I think of you, I... I I have to have that song in my head. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can I can do in 20 seconds. When I when my mother got re, my biological father was killed when I was two years old in a helicopter training accident at Fort Bragg. My mother got remarried when I was four, and they took me to the family court judge for my dad to adopt me, and uh, had me dressed up in a brown three-piece suit as a four-year-old. Now picture this little Alan in a three-piece brown suit, Oshkosh shoes, the whole the whole lot of it, and the judge asked me my name. And I told him it was Peter Parker and began crawling around on the floor under the judge's desk all over the floor. Of course, my parents were absolutely horrified. The judge just thought it was a hoot. And every year since that date, 1977, uh, my dad gives me something with Spider-Man on it because it reminds him of the day that he adopted me because I was acting like Spider-Man in the judge's chamber. So that's the inside joke that she's uh, – that's why she played the song. Now, also because I go out and catch criminals. Oh, yes. Yes, that's why I cut it off at that point. (laughs) (laughs) You know me. Come on. By the way, how is your dad doing? He's great. I saw him yesterday at the signing of the heartbeat bill. He came up to the state house and uh, got to spend some time with him and was at at another event with him last night. He and mom are doing great, and I really appreciate you for asking about him. Well, I got to let everyone know that uh, uh, Joe Wilson was my congressman until they did redistricting. Uh, Now we have Nancy Mace. So that's why I got to know your dad and you, uh, especially through the the Republican Party, uh, because we've got the convention coming up this May. But I don't know if we're going to do it, you know, like a Zoom meeting or what. But uh, right now, all across the nation, we're doing these precinct reorganizations. Uh, but you mentioned the fetal heart uh, bill, 
uh, which was the baby of Richard Cash, who was also another friend of mine. And it just got passed and signed into law by Governor McMaster's. And lo and behold, no longer, no sooner was the ink wet than the pro-life was out there with a lawsuit. What's going on? Well, I mean, pro-choice. yeah, we, we got, yeah, we got sued uh, in federal court today. Uh, actually, yesterday, uh, literally as the ink was drying, and we expected it. There's nothing un, unexpected about that, and we um, were actually uh, in court today uh, defending. The suit, um, obviously, there's been a motion for a, a temporary restraining order and, uh, and a preliminary injunction and uh, for the law going into effect. So our intent is to argue to the court that that shouldn't happen. But even if it does happen, we intend to you know, defend this law as long as we got runway in front of us all the way to the Supreme Court. Um, you know, we believe that we believe strongly that the most fundamental right anyone have, has is the right to life. And the bill obviously is as a principal tenant of the bill, with obviously exceptions for rape or incest, life of the mother. But uh, that's the law that the General Assembly passed, the law that the governor signed, and it's the law that I'm going to defend until I have no other legal recourse. Yeah, well, can you explain exactly what it is so people understand what we mean when we say the fetal heartbeat bill? So basically, the law places a requirement that um, it, it moves viability back to the detection of a heartbeat, uh, which could be anywhere from what, six to eight weeks. So it, it prohibits a doctor. It requires first, it requires a doctor to, to, to you know test to see if they can detect the heartbeat, and if they can, it prohibits a doctor from performing an abortion. Um, you know, so it, it basically moves the the, the viability to to that point in time that a, a heartbeat is detectable. Well, I got to tell you, um, my mom had a stroke last year, so now she's living with me, and God bless her. Um, uh, she's Italian. I mean, Italian Roman Catholic, <laughs> and uh, I, her church was doing one of these things for a pro-life uh, demonstration downtown in, here in Buford. So I went with her, and I made myself a T-shirt, and I thought this was rather clever. And the T-shirt I, I created said, I thank God my mom chose life. And she loved it so much that one day I didn't realize that she stole it from me and wore it to church. <laughs> so oh, wow. you've got a lot of support around here. Well, thank you. And, and again, it's my job. It's it's my job. And so, um, you know, we're honored to do that. But, you know, again, I know you, you're here to talk about a bunch of other issues. And I, and I, again, want to thank you for having me on your program to talk about them. Well, you know, you're always welcome. I didn't know you had a new communications director, uh, so I kept on trying to call an out-of-use number. I've corrected that. Um, one of the other things yeah. that you are uh, spearheading, you joined in with 13 other states in a lawsuit over the XL pipeline. Now, here the XL pipeline goes through the middle of America, and most people wouldn't understand or expect why you and Georgia would join in the lawsuit uh, against the Biden administration for closing it down. What impact does that pipeline have to us here in South Carolina? Well, obviously, the pipeline is, is a way to you know take. I mean, it, it's a way to move oil from where you know from Canada all the way down across the United States so that it can be processed and turned into fuel. 
Um, if, if it's not moved through a pipeline, it's got to be moved, moved through, through some other means, be it you know trucks, trains, whatever the case may be. Um, the Biden administration should, and, and of course, for those states in the heartland, you know, the, the Midwest or where the, the pipeline is going through, you know, you're talking about thousands of directly affected jobs. Now, that, that I'm gonna get to the point of what that has to do with South Carolina in just a second. But you're dealing with thousands of, of American jobs. You're also dealing with tens of thousands downriver jobs. These are jobs where, you know, the, the, these workers on the pipeline have to sleep in hotels and motels. They have to go to restaurants. They have to buy gas. They have to buy groceries. And it's, it's the cost of the economy at a time where, you know, some states are shutting everything down and they're paying people to stay home. And now you're killing jobs on top of that. So as a matter of public policy, it's bad public policy for our country. But it's also bad public policy, not just from the job loss point of view. It's bad public policy because the cost of energy goes up. The cost of transporting the fuel goes up, which gets passed on to the consumer. And then, of course, the reliance of, of, of oil in the Middle East. As a matter of foreign policy, it's bad public policy to have to rely on Middle East oil reserves. Um, and so, you know, again, I'm a believer that all of the above is, is the energy policy we need to have. We can't just rely on oil. We got to we got to look at other forms of energy. We got to we got to develop nuclear. We got to. I'm, I'm even a fan of greener uh, in, energy sources, but not at the expense of the jobs and the economy that goes into providing uh, coal and oil and other um, you know other forms of energy. But the cost of energy is going to go up, and that's going to hurt people here in South Carolina. And also, the the, the last reason is, you know. If you remember, Donald Trump tried to overturn President Barack Obama's DACA executive order, the Deferred Action for Early Childhood Arrivals, which Obama did an executive order uh, allowing people who were dreamers to stay here. Now, this is something that was supposed to be done in law by Congress, but he did it through executive fiat. Well, Donald Trump, using the same system, an executive order, tried to overturn President Obama's executive order. Well, the court ruled against Trump, saying one president can't take an executive order and overturn a previous presidential executive order when the general public has um, developed a reliance interest. In other words, if people start relying on this and they start setting up their lives and going to school and getting jobs, and you overturn that, then you're affecting their due process. And so then the court said, well… If you're going to overturn President Obama's executive order, you have to do so by going through the Administrative Procedures Act, which is a you know a structured framework for how you overturn government policy. And I disagree with that decision at the time because I think executive orders aren't law. Therefore, they can be overturned by other presidential executive orders. With that being said, uh, an, an executive order stood up the XL pipeline pursuant to a directive of Congress that was under Trump. Now, Mr. Biden wants to take an executive order to undo President Trump's executive order. You know where I'm going with this, Ann. What's good for the goose is good for the gander. And so we sent a letter to the, to the president, uh, President Biden, saying, you know, outlining our reasons why this was bad public policy. This is bad for ener- the cost of energy. This is bad from the econ- economy standpoint. It's bad on the Middle East reliance standpoint. But it's also wrong. And so we're talking, you know, we're giving the president an opportunity to do the right thing, knowing that he probably won't. But we, you know, we're exploring our legal options to include bringing the same type of lawsuit that supporters of the left did against President Trump. We're going to use their own jurisprudence against them uh, on on this. And so we're we're exploring our legal avenues right now as you and I are speaking. So that is that is our issue with the XL pipeline. 
Well, you know, it's funny because there's so many issues that that come off of that that the spider web off of just that one thing. You know, you mentioned DACA, you mentioned jobs, you mentioned um, cost of fuel. Um, I had to make a quick run to the vet to get some medicine for one of my cats, and I'm looking at the gas prices. Now, just a little over a, two weeks ago, I put my car into the gas station, and it was $1.89 a gallon. Um, I filled my car up at $1.89 only two weeks ago. Today, I went past that very same gas station, and it's 50 cents higher. It jumped 50 cents in two weeks. And as soon as Biden came in, my co-host Curtis will tell you, I said, you're going to see gas prices climb over $3 a gallon. And with just closing that XL pipeline alone, thousands of jobs were lost. Thousands more down the line are going to be lost. It's going to snowball into – someone had estimated 3 million jobs. But already gasoline has jumped 50 cents. Now, how does someone earning minimum wage living out in St. Helena make it all the way out to their job flipping burgers or cleaning hotel rooms out in Hilton Head? They can't. I mean, there's so many other issues. You're you're absolutely right, Ann, but let's take this out broader. First off, you have the federal government passing stimulus packages that are incentivizing people to stay home because they make more money to stay home than they do to go back to work. Then you also have the federal government putting out policies that say we're going to jack the minimum wage up to $15 uh, nationally, a national minimum wage of $15, where 26 states already pay more than the federal minimum wage does requires right now. But they want to do a national $15 minimum wage for an entry-level position. And as you know, in many places, especially in South Carolina, the cost of living is substantially lower than it is in California or New York or Illinois or, or Florida. Uh, but you're going to put small business people in a very awkward position of having to choose, do I cut people's hours back? Do I let people go? Do I jack up the cost of the food or the services I'm, and products I'm providing? Uh, so all these policies are working together just like you know, his, he's, making, he's making the cost of um, putting fuel in your car more expensive. His policies are making it harder for mom-and-pop businesses to provide jobs, entry-level jobs with people with entry-level work experience, uh, and they're pricing them out of the market. And so you're going to have – you're going to see unemployment j- get jacked up. You're going to see the cost of goods and services get jacked up because it's getting passed on to the consumer. The ability to drive to and from your house and your job, if you're lucky enough to have one, is going to go up because of their energy policies. So it's just a cascading effect. All of these decisions somehow work together to make it harder to crawl out of a, a, a pandemic where many states and many municipalities are locking people down and refusing to let them go, uh, you know, have jobs or create jobs to, so people can provide for their families. Well, when they start talking about the $15 an hour minimum wage several years back, the, my co-host again will tell you the first thing I said you're going to lose jobs, and instead of having an employee, you're going to have a kiosk. It's going to be automation. And lo and behold, the local Wally World, before they start talking about the $15 minimum wage, they had maybe two self-service cash registers. Now uh, they have about, uh, I think it's about 10 on one side of the building and another 10 on the other side. Those are 20 checkout lines that could have been 20 employees. 
instead it's all self-automated. Right. You have one or two employees supervising those 10 checkout lines. Not only that, now you go into the local Burger King or McDonald's. You don't go up to the counter. You go to a kiosk, punch it in, and someone pulls your food out and hands it to you. Soon, it's going to be like the old automats that we had in Manhattan. You go up there, you punch the number, you pull the sandwich out, and you walk away. You don't even have a person interacting with you. And this is what we're going you to know, be forcing our kids to do. We're a little more defined here in Florida. We we have those machines in the stores and the restaurants, but you know a lot of people don't use them. Now I did notice that um, Walmart at night, the only way you can cash out is to use one of those machines, and it's, it's almost like what the Democrats do, what they can't get you to agree to or volunteer to do, they mandate. No, you're, you're absolutely right. And again, it's not just, you know, when you jack up the price, what people understand about minimum wage, when you artificially raise minimum wage in the market, the market adjusts for that. When, uh, when a person has to pay someone, say they're currently paying someone $7, uh, $7.25 or $7.50 an hour, maybe they're paying them $8, a little over minimum wage, and you jack up the price $7 an hour, that person has to make a decision. Do I cut back the number of hours this young 20-year-old or 18- or 16-year-old is working? Do I cut them back in hours? Do I, um, do I let them go and go to a more automated process, invest in automation? Uh, do I increase the cost of the goods or services that we are providing to the public? And by the way, when you increase the cost of, you know, when you increase the cost of a hamburger at McDonald's because you're now having to pay $15 minimum wage – you're, you're eating into – that's the inflation. You're eating into the very pay raise you're giving people because now it costs them more to live their lives. It's a death spiral. And so you're creating all of these things that the – you're creating all these conditions that the market has to adjust for, and you're raising the cost of living so much that the $15 is no longer buying the same amount of goods and services it did before. Uh, because it, you're not listening to the market. And again, I understand that the argument is out there, the number, the people who are having to work multiple jobs, but, and I don't have the numbers in front of me. The vast, vast, vast majority of people in minimum wage jobs are younger, either high school or college students or young people who don't have skills, but they, they need to start somewhere and develop a marketable skill, and then they grow from there which if you raise the minimum wage, you're pricing them out of the market because then business owners are going to say, it's no, it was worth it to me to pay this young 16-year-old or this 22-year-old to you know, run a cash register. It's no longer worth it to me to pay a human being to do that. I need to invest in automation, or I need to increase the cost of goods, or I need to cut their hours back. Either way, you're creating and incentivizing um, reactions that are going to hurt the consumer and the low-wage worker. And if you hurt the low-wage worker, uh, as you said, prices of everything goes up, businesses will close. What is the point if, I, if I'm putting out more money than I am taking in? And that's what happens. We, we had um, one of the meetings where um, Mark Sanford came in for our Tea Party meeting, and someone turned around when they were trying to pass Obamacare, and he said, listen, it's going to cost me X, Y, Z to give my employees the Obamacare when I can just turn around, fire a few, put the rest of them all on part-time. But he goes, 
I love my employees. I want to take care of them. I don't want to do that. How do I get around it? And there is no way to get around it. Now, what is wrong with adhering to the Tenth Amendment? Those powers not granted to the federal government are therefore you know, placed upon the states. Where in the Constitution is a federal minimum wage? I don't recall seeing it. Well, you know, again, people on the left, they read in. If you go to Article 1, Section 8 of the U.S. Constitution, you're going to see about 18 different um, powers of Congress. And a lot of those has to do with the regulation of commerce, uh, things affecting commerce and interstate trade and, and, and travel and things like that. And they also find there's, there's the 18th power under Article 2, Section 8, which is the Necessary and Proper Clause, which is oftentimes used to justify, uh, again, it, it's a growth in the view of the role of government, or it's the view of the government that the government's role is, is growing over the years. People, they, they put powers in Congress that were probably never envisioned by the framers of those of, of the Constitution. Um, and so that's what's happening. Government is getting bigger and bigger and bigger because the people who run government have a vision for government that was far bigger than it was ever intended. And they always talk about doing it from a place of compassion. It's always about we want to take care of people. We want people to be provided for. It's the government's job to to make sure that you, you can make a living and, and you know, we're going to step in and we're going to guarantee you a certain level of income. And again, I'm a compassionate person and I believe that there are certain social safety nets that we can have through religious institutions and nonprofit organizations, which the government can in- incentivize their existence. But when the government becomes so big to give you everything you want, it becomes big enough to take everything you have. And that is, that is really what's going on right now. You have those on the left, who think government should be all-powerful. Look at the role of the left, how they see the role of government in the implementation of COVID-19 lockdown policies, as opposed to red states uh, who don't want to lock down businesses, who want to give people the freedom to run their businesses, you know, while maintaining safe distances and wearing masks and doing the things they're supposed to do. But you look at states like Florida, which is somewhere in the middle of the pack on, on COVID deaths, and then you look at New York and, and New Jersey, where they're doing horrible lockdowns, and they're ranked n- number one and number two, respectively, in COVID deaths, and California the boot. So, you know, it's the left. It's about control. It's about government being so big and so invasive that they can control the bottom line. And whereas those of us on the right, you know, say that, listen, you can be compassionate, but you have to be constrained because government is nothing but a gun the power to compel and coerce and force people to give up stuff so that it can be given to other people. And that is a very dangerous power to cede to the uh, federal government. That's why the framers gave us the 10th amendment because they wanted the states to have that reserved authority. That's not listed in the constitution. Like you said, Amy. And, and, but people are just ignoring that these days. Well, I, I've seen across the nation, there are states such as ours um, that are starting to turn around to the federal government going, we do not recognize your power over us. And in certain issues now, with the latest one being uh, new gun laws, they're trying to find other manners in which to take away, regulate, and destroy our Second Amendment right. Um, but there are states that are saying, we do not recognize the federal authority over us on this issue. Uh, I, I wish they would do it on a lot more of the other issues. Um, where do you stand now in protecting our Second Amendment right? Because I know at this point the state legislator is looking at 
uh, passing a law for open carry. Yes. Well, well, first off, I'm a strong Second Amendment proponent. I'm 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 not one of these people. I, I would be in support of open carry. Um, you know, I know it's been passed in other states. Uh, right now, I'm in lawsuits with local municipalities over red flag laws. Um, I don't know if you've read up here in Columbia. I've sued the city of Columbia because of a number of local ordinances they've passed that are yep. uh, preempted by state law, um, and and also that potentially could infringe on Second Amendment rights. And you know, and I've called the the, the government leaders of Columbia, and I warned them through a series of legal opinions that you are passing ordinances that are a bridge too far. Um, I remember talking to the mayor, who I personally get along with, you know, socially. We we have a very warm relationship. But I remember saying, "Listen, the the state law that governs this is written by the General Assembly. It says, you know, any laws affecting the the possession, the carrying, the manufacturing, the production of firearms has to be passed uh, by the General Assembly." You can't pass laws that affect those areas, and the reason the General Assembly did that is, is they recognized that municipalities would uh, try to do a patchwork of gun control laws that would be popping up all over the state. So like when I drive to work in the morning, I drive through different municipalities. I drive through an unincorporated area of Lexington County. I drive through the town of Lexington. I drive through the city of Columbia, drive through Richland County you know, just to get to work. You know, if every single municipal or subdivision of state government had its own gun control laws or red flag laws, I would have to stop at the county or city line uh, to uh, you know, take my gun out here and, or, 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 or carry it a certain way or, or not even have it at all. And the General Assembly said, hey, that needs to go through state government so that we can have uniform laws. And so for purposes of regulation of guns, that belongs to the state legislature, which is answerable to all the people. So we've got a lawsuit right now that's currently pending in state court, and we're going to be defending people's Second Amendment rights here in South Carolina. And as to uh, President Biden, you know, when I listen to him talk, <laughs> we need to have common sense gun laws. Well, we, you know, in almost every tragedy – that uh, that has befallen us, whether it's Parkland or Sandy Hook or, you know, going back to Columbine 25 years ago. I mean, there were common sense gun laws that were violated or not followed by the evil person who did the horrible thing that they did. And so th so sometimes I say it's not the con it's not the passage of new common and I'm doing air quotes. You can't see me. It's not the passage <laughs> of new common sense gun laws. Um, it's the enforcement of the current laws on the books. And secondly, he says we don't want weapons of war on the streets of America. Well, what is a weapon of war? To a liberal or a leftist, it's a gun that looks scary. I mean, they talk about AR-15s. You know, I know I got a lot of friends that hunt. AR-15 is probably the weakest caliber rifle they have in, in their collection of guns when it comes to hunting or shooting uh, targets. Uh, but because the AR-15 is the, uh, a color black. It resembles what looks like a, uh, an M16, although it's very different in its function and, and use. Um, you know, it just looks mean and scary, so they want to outlaw it. Those are what they view as weapons of war, and ultimately, it's going to go to pistols. I mean, the the line, the goalpost, as they say, is being moved back every time a concession is made. Then the goalpost gets moved back and says, "Well, we need to do more because we don't have enough laws to protect people." So I, I'm not going to abide by that. I will always stand in the breach and protect people's Second Amendment rights because I can tell you right now, they will never, they will never, ever, ever have enough gun laws, gun control laws to make to, make, to convince themselves that they've protected you from yourself.
they'll never get there. And if you remember Joe Biden, remember who Joe Biden's gun czar is going to be, Beto O'Rourke. This is a guy when he was running for president who said he wanted a mandatory buyback program. This is who Joe Biden has put as his leader on gun control policy in America. So that, that, that's the signal that they've sent us, and we're going to fight back as hard as we can in the courts. No, I, I, it just made me think of something funny because I, wasn't it Joe Biden when he was vice president that said, well, if you want to scare off a burglar, you just go out in your back porch, fire the shotgun up in the air. Uh, do you remember that? <laughs> I, I remember him saying that. I remember him saying shooting someone through the door, uh, which is murder. Uh, I also remember him <laughs> saying about cops, why can't the cops shoot somebody in the foot or the leg or the arm? Or the hand. And I'm like, all right, listen, I, I've served in combat. I'm an, I, I've served in Iraq. I'm not a police officer. I've got a lot of friends who are. But you don't know how difficult it is to shoot center of mass, more or less shooting at someone's flailing appendages as they're charging you. Uh, and you're, you risk shooting other people when you're aiming for a, a leg or an arm. That is why they teach you to shoot center of mass. Joe Biden knows absolutely zero about how to shoot a firearm. He knows zero about firearms and about firearm safety, but he's saying what the far left of his base wants him to say, and his policies are going to follow his words, and that's what scares me about it. No, I, I have to laugh whenever someone says, why don't you just shoot him in the leg? I was like, uh, yeah, right. You've obviously never been in a situation where you have to pull your weapon on a live person and make a determination. And I'll tell you, I have never once taken a legal weapon off of someone. It's always been an illegal firearm that I've confiscated uh, in in my line of duty. Uh, so, yeah, it, it just amazes me. Yeah, so... Well, oh, and again, it's... think about it. The people, the, the the people who are these laws are being passed. You know, law-abiding citizens are going to follow the law, even if I don't agree with the law. I'm not going to put myself in a position to be breaking the law. Criminals, people who don't who who are criminals. That's why we call them criminals because they break the law. They're not going to say, "Oh, I have to now register my illegally gotten gun with the with the federal <laughs> registry," or I have to follow this. You know particular rule that's been passed. They're, they're, they're simply not going to abide by that. You know, again, it's the left with this do-gooder mentality, and, and I have a lot of friends who are liberal. I think they're well-intentioned. I think they're good people. I think they truly believe what they say, and that they truly believe that what they say will save lives. I believe that they believe that, so I don't can, I, I'm not attacking their character, and I'm not attacking their intent, but what I am saying is, is that their intentions are going to have unintended consequences, and we see that in almost every component of leftist policy over the last 50 or 60 years, whether it's foreign policy, whether it's economic policy, civil rights law, uh, gun policy. There's always unintended consequences that uh, are a result or a byproduct of leftist ideology that hurts our nation. Well, I, I know you do have to jump off in a few moments because you got something else going on at 2 o'clock. Uh, the last thing I really wanted to touch on really quick, which I wish we could get into a lot more depth, is that with these COVID lockdowns, especially with the elderly and having my mom, who's 88 years old, 89, I forget now, <laughs> um, we're seeing the rise of scams. There are so many ways in which the criminals are finding some way to make money off of this by calling houses, by sending information, knocking on the door. There's a lot of scams out there, and you recently put a um, a press release out 
dealing with this issue. No, absolutely. Um, and so in, in the age of COVID, as we call it, in the, the, the pandemic lockdowns that you're seeing at different levels in different areas of the country, um, there's a lot of there's a lot of anxiety, especially with senior citizens and older people, people who are easily exploitable because they might be on a fixed income or maybe they don't have a lot of income earning years in front of them. And of course, when you're hearing the economy is about to go belly up and, 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 the, and the, the, the dollar's about to plummet and people are encouraging you to invest in bullion coins or gold coins or silver or they're encouraging you to invest in property or some commodity somewhere because they've got these people convinced that something really bad is going to happen. And again, anxieties are raised. People are very nervous and scared because we're, we're going through a worldwide pandemic. This is the time that the bad guys are going to use to exploit those fears and that anxiety to benefit from it financially. And we've brought a number of um, cases against those who've exploited under securities law, who are exploiting seniors. And, and not, it's not just senior citizens, um, but although that seems to be predominantly where they're, they're the target is going, but it's, it's all kinds of fraud and it's all kinds of people that are being preyed upon. You know, um, I get constant calls from people telling me. Uh, you know, the IRS uh, wants uh, – it says my social security number has been compromised and wanting me to read my social security number to them. Or you're getting called saying, hey, you, you're being um, – you're going to go to jail because you have not paid this bill. Um, we need your credit card number. You know, and, and there's all of these – you know, the old Nigerian prince email that, from years and years ago. Those kind of scams are still out there, and they're preying on people's fears and anxiety, and the best defense against that is yourself. Um, no, no one from the government will ever call you on a phone call to tell you you're going to go to jail, okay? And if someone ever does, you say, listen, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to hang up with you, and I'm going to go Google the number for the Social Security Administration or the FBI or the local sheriff's department, and I'm going to call them myself, okay? And usually they'll hang up on you at that point. But, you, but don't ever give out personally identifiable information to anyone online, and don't take what someone says over the phone or over an email or over a text at face value. Um, you, you, you simply collect their information, and then you go do your due diligence. You, you talk to law enforcement, or you call the Better Business Bureau, or you call the attorney general's office. You can Google us online. You can contact us, and I can have one of my securities attorneys on the phone with you in five minutes to talk to you about this. We, we can tell you if this is a reputable broker, dealer of a security, or a, you know, someone who's dealing in this type of business. So use, use this office to protect yourself. But remember, we can't be there with you. You are your own first line of defense. Oh, absolutely. Alan, you are doing a fantastic job up there for us, and you're out there not just for the state of South Carolina. A lot of what you do affects the rest of the nation. You protect the rights of not just those of us in South Carolina, but by your actions, everyday citizens throughout the nation. God bless you. Thank you so much. God bless you all, and have a wonderful weekend. Hope to talk to you soon. All right, and All you right. also open invite to our tea party meetings. I sent uh, your guy a little note on that one too. We'll definitely come back down there. Look forward to seeing you then. All right, say hi to your All dad. Right. Take. All right, Take Alan care. Wilson. Bye bye. All right, uh, he's got to run to another meeting. Alan Wilson, uh, if you want to know more, it's scag.gov. Um, I'm thinking that this might be our next 
Yes, yes, it is on the line. I want to bring on uh, Dennis Carstens. He has a fantastic book that he co-authored with Linda Tripp, uh, who recently passed away from cancer. It deals with the Clinton White White House, titled "A Basket of Deplorables: What I Saw Inside the Clinton White House." Good afternoon, Dennis. De- but the teeth in backwards. I cannot talk today. Dennis, how are you today? It's Friday. Hang in there. I'm fine. Is this Annie? Yes, it is. The one and only. Great. I was almost late. I thought I was calling at 2 o'clock my time. I I just got in the house about two two minutes ago. So I'm in in Minnesota, so uh, I'm in central time. So I'm calling a little boy. Anyway, (laughs) good afternoon. Here we are. Yeah. Now I got to ask you, how did you get involved with writing this book? Because you're not someone that writes this type of a book. You write these mysteries, and you've got yes. tons of them out there. I, I, I have to admit, I have not read any of your books. You've got to buy every one of them. They're wonderful. <laughs> um, the way this happened, I have a, a woman who is a, a big fan of my work. She's bought and read all my books. And there's one of them in particular entitled Political Justice, and it's about a man and wife. Uh, he's a governor, and then she they're running for president, and they're just total sleazebags. I mean, there's nothing these two won't do to achieve power and money and, and the presidency and all this. And so this woman knew Linda. And she wrote me and she said, God, this is just great. Would you would you mind sending a copy of this to uh, to Linda? I said, no, not at all. So I did. And Linda wrote me back right away. And she said, first thing she said was, why aren't you at the top of the bestseller list? Because this is just fabulous. She said, you nailed these two. Now, let me be clear. I did not use the word Hillary or Bill or Clinton or Democrat or Republican or any of that in in that book. I just still you know, made up names, and it sounds an awful lot like the Clintons. So anyway, she got to talking to me about it. When when all this blew up, um, I don't know how old you are, but if you can remember back, the media in this country just ripped her to shreds. All she was at, what they claimed was, all she wanted to do was write a book, make a bunch of money, and stick it to the Clintons. And she never did. She did not want anything to do with any of that. So now about 10 years after she retires, one of her grandsons comes home from school, and apparently they'd been discussing this whole business in uh, in school that day. And he asked Linda, he said, Grandma, are you famous? Because we were talking about you, and your name came up. And I don't you know, they didn't know anything about this. So she decided she was going to sit down and write this up, not not for publication, but just for her family so that they would know her side of all of this. And she got to telling me about this, and, and she asked me if I would be interested in turning this into a book. And I said, of course, you know, it is a great project. Um, but I, it took me about a month, really, to convince her to do this because she was still afraid of the Clintons. She was still afraid that if, if she wrote this, they would come after her. I said, no, they won't. They don't have that kind of clout anymore. I said, besides, you know, I convinced her that this was this was part of the history and it needed to be told. And this, so we did. This was in the fall of 2019. And we worked on Linda had written up, I'm, I'm serious, 1,200 
13, maybe 1,400 pages of this whole business. And it was just the same. It was kind of the same stuff over and over. How sleazy these two were. How immoral these two were. How unethical these two were. How dishonest these two were. How badly they treated people. And it was just, you know, the same stuff every day, over and over. She had just tons of this. And I, it was my job to boil this down into a, a fairly comprehensive book. So we did this over the winter of 2019 to 2020, and then in April of 2020, uh, to cut to it a little bit, she she discovered she had cancer, and she died just a few days after it was diagnosed. And at that point, I did not have everything. I did not have, I had up to the point where she went to um, the Ken Starr investigation with tapes of her conversations with uh Milana, with Monica mm-hmm. and turned all that over to Ken Starr and then he he got a hold of Monica and then Monica more or less became uh, the chief witness but I, I didn't have any of that what happened after she went to Ken Starr with this so I bought Ken Starr's book which is really good it's got, um, entitled Contempt if you want a good read about this that's pretty good He did he does a pretty good job and academics like he is typically don't write that well, but this is pretty well written. So I did get a lot of the uh, the things that Linda did when she went to his his investigation and brought all that stuff. But there was still she still did a lot of things after that that I that I didn't have. It was but it was mostly um, uh, testifying before grand juries and things like that. There, that's long winded enough to tell you how I got <laughs> into this. <laughs> What would you like to well, know? You want to know? Okay, go ahead. Well, I, I had the pleasure of interviewing Roger Stone a couple of times, and he wrote that one oh. book on the dealing with uh, Bubba when he was governor and some of the sleazy things that uh, uh, Hillary did with some of his uh, girlfriends. Um, so I, I, I had a good background knowing where you guys okay. were going to be coming from. Uh, so when I read your book, I was already aware of the propensity okay. of Hillary to uh, abuse the women uh, that uh, Clinton is, was enjoying. And, but yet she helped facilitate at the same time. And, you know, I, it was startling, though, because you got right into the raw roots. You went deeper into it than Roger Stone did. Uh, which really opened my eyes because I, yeah. I, so through doing these interviews, I, I had also Dan Bongino, so I knew about their okay. dislike of law enforcement, um, uh, as well as their propensity for foul language. Uh, but actually, that, <laughs> that is really amazing. That you know, I'm so, you know, I'm I'm no prude, but the things that they were that Linda saw, see, Linda was only when she was in the White House with the Clintons she was in the White House first with George Bush, the the dad. And then she stayed on for about another year and a half with the Clintons and that's all she could take of these two. I mean and she went they went in in, in January of ninety two. Linda bailed out of there in like I think it was April or May of ninety three. She just could not take the sleaze of these two anymore. But she was literally right in the middle of it. She, her her desk was maybe 15 or 20 feet from Hillary's office. And so she saw this all the time, the screaming matches and the, 
the sleaze and the, the yeah the foul language. And you know, I got to know Linda. She's you know she's no prude either, but it was appalling to her. Here these two are standing in in the hall of the White House, screaming at each other, using the most foul language you can imagine. This this is no place for that kind of stuff. I mean, come on, be a little bit respectful of where you are. But they just they weren't. They just they're. They're users is what they are. They're users of people. If you can bring something to their advantage, they'll use you. But don't kid yourself that um, you're, you're, uh, it's reciprocated, that your loyalty to them is reciprocated to you because it is not. And I see people on TV these, still these days that believe that it was, that they believe they still are loyal to the Clintons and believe that the Clintons are loyal to them. They're not even loyal to each other, okay? And uh, I had a thought, and I missed it now. Um, <laughs> yeah, something just popped in and out that I wanted to tell you. Um, oh, Vince we Foster. All that age. We all reach that mm-hmm. age where we end up suffering from CRS. Can't remember. Yeah, I know. It's... <laughs> It's been a long, long day, anyway. Uh, well, well, to let you know that, yes, I was fully, uh, I, I lived through all this. As a matter of fact, the first president I voted for was not Jimmy Carter, but he eventually did get into office, thankfully for two terms. <laughs> the good old Gipper. Uh, oh, so, right. Yeah. Okay. Um, I wrote. I I didn't vote for Ron the first time around, but I did vote for him the second time around. Um, I, I don't know why. I think I was just more younger and more liberal then, and I didn't. I'm gr- more grown up now, so I don't. You know, I, I, looking back, oh. and thank God, thank God, we got rid of Carter, and you know, the, and Obama eventually. Well, I'm the I didn't think anyone would be worse than Jimmy Carter because I had to live through the gas lines and I was going to college. Oh. Actually, I had my first business at that point. So waiting on which day of the week, depending upon your driver's uh, license yes, plate, yes. was get gas. Yeah. And uh, Jimmy Carter, was. I was not very happy, and I owned a business under him, believe it or not. And I succeeded. I got out alive. Yeah, I remember those days. I went through it twice. Yeah, I was on the East Coast in the Air Force when the first time hit, back in '73, '74, and then I was home by by the one in '78, '79. So I remember that too. Um, yeah. Well, you know, your, your readers, your listeners may like to know. Now, here's something I I really like to get straight: is this recording of Monica Lewinsky because she took a lot of heat for that. But what uh-huh. happened there was. Linda left the White House in the spring of '93. Monica didn't go back, didn't go into the White House until the summer of '94. So they didn't know each other during that time when either one of them was in the White House. And then in '95, no, she went in. I'm sorry, Linda left in '93. In '94, Monica went in '95, and Bill Clinton kicked her out then, or in '96. And she just, uh, by coincidence, landed in the same office as Linda was in back in the in the Pentagon. Linda was originally uh, civil service with the Pentagon. That's how they got to know each other. And it wasn't until 90, the late 97, 
when um, this guy, a guy named Mike Isikoff, wrote this article about Bill Clinton and his women problems, and he had come to Linda. Somebody told him to go to Linda and talk to her about it. She flat told him, I want nothing to do with this. Leave me alone. He eventually hounded her into giving him some background information on a promise of remaining anonymous, that he would not name her in this article. And then he went ahead and named her anyway. So now Linda is scared that the Clintons are going to come after her. And somebody told her, look, you need to get some stuff here to cover yourself that what, you, what went on there is true. So that's when she started um, taping Monica was in September or October of 97, and it only went on for a couple months before she went to uh, Ken Starr then in January of 98 to um, to give him that stuff from, from the tape recordings and things. But I kind of like to get that stuff straight because people believe that as soon as Monica showed up in the White House, Linda started tape recording her, and it was it, there was nothing like that. It was it was like two almost two years. It was a good two years later before any of that came to be, and she was outed by this lying journalist who said he was going to protect her, and he didn't. Yeah, and then there's the other women problems by Bill. Bill's um, you asked about Hillary. Hillary knew everything he was doing. He knew all about Monica, and Monica was just one of dozens of women that went in there and literally serviced Bill Clinton with oral sex on a daily basis. And and she was just one, and Hillary knew every one of them. She had spies all over the White House. She knew exactly what Bill was up to, and she used that to uh, run the White House and make policy, because what what one of the things I discovered here was Bill Clinton is a very weak man. He just cannot control himself or re- refrain from his uh, base base sexual needs, and Hillary used that constantly as a cudgel to to beat him down. Most of the most of the screaming matches were, were him standing there like a whipped puppy while she berated him up one side and down the other. It's, a, it's an interesting dichotomy, those two, because Hillary ran the show. And another thing I discovered is Hillary is not a very capable woman as far as managing things or running anything. She, you know, The only thing she ever did on her own was that 92-93 um, health care initiative. And she made such a mess of it, even Democrats wouldn't touch it. So Hillary is not this great, capable, confident, competent woman. She really isn't. And she is no friend of women either. I have to go outside now and look and see if there's a flock of flying monkeys hanging around my house <laughs> to see if she's after me. But it's, well, I it's true. I mean, got- She's a vicious person. <laughs> well, I, I have to look to see if there's a, that dark SUV parked in my driveway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
But, you know, in reality, you know, Hillary Clinton was known to go after these other women. Oh, to yeah. intimidate them and threaten them. Yeah, uh, and cases having their apartments or homes broken into to send Secret Service yeah. over there to deliberately private, private investigators too. intimidate them. Yeah. Uh, she did it for Jennifer Flowers. She did it when he was governor. Uh, he, she did it when he was president. She's probably still doing it even today. To uh, maybe. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Who knows what he's up to. Um, Linda found a, an anonymous note that somebody left on her chair at her at her desk in the Pentagon. And it was, I don't remember exactly what the words were, but it was very clearly a death threat from someone that worked in the Pentagon and was a fan of the Clintons. This happened after um, most of this stuff blew up and, and became public. And that's something I just don't understand. Why would you, why would you um, back up, still, uh, still be uh, trying to, try to help these people? When, the, when all this came out, why are you blaming the people that he did this to? Why are you treating Bill Clinton as if he's the victim? He's no victim. He used people and threw them away. And Hillary was worse. And I don't get that. I don't, but I don't understand why people become emotionally attached to these politicians who they've never met. But, you know, I've, I've gotten some uh, reviews on the book that weren't about the book. They were about... Um, well, you know, um, Linda needs her five minutes of fame yet and stuff like that. They're just they're trashing her personally 20 years later. After all we've learned about this Bill and Hillary Clinton, why do people still support them? I do not understand that. Help me out here, Annie. I mean, I, I really get it. Am, I'm serious. I, I don't get it. I don't. Get, why you know? Why do people fall in love with Barack Obama or even or even Donald Trump? I mean, I thought Trump did a, tried to do a good job, but there were things about his personality. You know, we're we're not going to be friends, pal, because you know you're just you're a little out there. But keep up the good work. You're doing okay. But you know he could be a jerk. And and now we've got Joe Biden who. Oh God, help us! I, you know, I can only imagine if something goes wrong. You know, and, and Joe Biden and the same bunch of nitwits that were that helped Barack Obama become such an ineffective failure. We've got the same bunch, and people fall yeah, well, in love I, with these guys. I don't get it. Well, uh, with the meltdowns we're seeing President Biden have, I I told oh, God geez. bless Trump. I turned around to mom and I says, mom, I told you that after six months, it's going to be President Queen Kamala Harris. Uh, oh, and I, scary. Said, I, don't think, I don't think it's going to be as long as six months. I think it's going to be a, a lot sooner because uh, she's already be. as de facto president behind the scenes. Now, this is amazing. This would make it the third time a woman has acted as de facto president. First was yeah. the FDR, his wife, Hillary Clinton. Ah, Wilson, all right, make it uh, more times. Yeah, Wilson, Wilson's wife. Female president. Yeah. Wilson had that. Uh, after he came back from Europe in the peace conference, he had a very bad stroke. 
and was right. uh, almost in, totally incapacitated. And you're right. Um, then there was, um, what's her name, Roosevelt, Eleanor. Eleanor, yeah. Hillary. Hillary. Yeah. But the thing about, uh, I mean, with Hillary, they made no bones about it. You, you know, they made, they told everybody up front, you're getting a two-for-one deal here. But they did a really good job of packaging that and making it look like this this is a real marriage and we really like each other. Yeah, okay. And and now we've got Kamala Harris who couldn't even win the primary. She couldn't even get anybody to vote for her for president or the nomination in California, where she's from. No one wanted to vote for this woman and she could very well end up be you're right, being president. But then I've I've offered five hundred bucks to anybody who can find me somebody who who before any of the primaries were going and anybody started voting, find me one person who was really a Joe Biden fan. Boy, I want that Joe Biden. He'll be a great president. No one there's nobody out there like that. But yet here he is. Something's very wrong. Very wrong. Absolutely. Who was absolutely. that other person that that was speaking? Oh, that's my co-host Curtis. Oh, Curtis, Curtis. also Hello. an author. Curtis, <laughs> Curtis, you're on. How many books have you got out now? Uh, well, twenty-five, got... twenty-six. Yeah. What kind? Oh, political suspense. Um, oh, okay. Military action, uh, human oh, okay. interest, and a couple of romance. Good. People don't realize how much work that is. Absolutely. (laughs) I haven't even started my first. (laughs) I think I got, I I have about maybe uh, 25 pages of my first book I've been working on for how long, Curtis, I've been talking about it. Well, there's a lot of of people do that to start it. And then uh, find out how how much work it is and don't get very far with it. Well, if I get five minutes to breathe, then I can sit down and start working on it. But I, that's what I need. I, I don't need dueling walkers in my house, which I have right now. So I have to act traffic cop as I see them coming down the hallway uh, and then take the time to do the show here. So, yeah, it, it, gets, it takes a lot of time. You know, uh, she talks yeah. extensively in the book about Kathleen Willey. Now, what a tragic story that was. Boy, that was um, terrible. That was just awful. She gets and, molested by Bill Clinton on the very same day her husband commits suicide for embezzlement, it sounded like. And it's just, Jesus. And she was such a nice, you know, I remember her. Thought, wow, she is a really attractive woman. She's a very pleasant woman, very nice. And what a tragic, what, you know, what a, what a horrible day for anybody. I mean, to get hit, to get ripped at like Bill Clinton did to her, and then later to find out her husband had committed suicide on the same day. Terrible. And the way, the manner in which they treated her, uh, and then the yes. way she's portrayed in the public, it again shows the mainstream media love affair with the Clintons without actually doing their job and investigating and reporting the truth. Now, just take what 
with their press office hands out. And if Hillary Clinton says that this is a bad person, then we're going to take her word for it. But when Linda Tripp and you write about the actual personality of Hillary Clinton, she goes out there. She's that, that woman that goes out there and bakes cookies. She stands by her man. She yeah, okay. <laughs> such a, yeah, remember the cookie recipes? Yeah, I uh, do, uh, I do. The bit with the pies? Yeah, uh-huh. Um, and then once she gets behind the scenes, to see the actual personality of her and Linda Tripp actually thought she needed mental health because she figured she was a paranoid schizophrenic and that is actually that was my diagnosis it really was that's that came from me because you know, when I asked Linda about it and she goes God I never thought of that but I think you might be right she's almost a Jekyll and Hyde kind of person she's you know in public fundraisers I mean she can be very nice the minute the doors are closed, she would she would be in the White House and she ran the whole thing and it was a disaster. It was a, it was it was the worst run business you can ever imagine. But when she was in the White House, the staff would all make sure when she was stomping around that you were looking down at your desk and at least pretending like you're doing something because you don't want to look at her. If you look at her in a way that displeases her, you're gone the next day. That's who she is. Okay? She has the people skills of an Auschwitz camp guard, and I'm not kidding. She will will throw (laughs) you aside without even thinking about it. It's like she has a need for it. She's a bit of a sociopath, too. She has no empathy for anyone. And I do believe she is an undiagnosed paranoid schizophrenic. She is she is that she can be that off the wall. One minute she, she'll be she and Bill will be standing there screaming at each other. Two minutes later they're standing out front holding hands doing a press conference. I mean I can't do that. I can't switch on and off like that. I can you know it's it's really quite a show those two put on. And hey, Dennis. Yeah. I was I was just thinking, you know, you don't hear about Bill Clinton as it relates to um, Jeffrey Epstein, you know. I mean, it was like they were getting really close to breaking something big. He dies, and it's, everything's it's, just shut it's down. It's like it's gone now. Yeah, I agree. I don't know. Um, I think I'm. I'm with you. I think there's something there, but I'm. Well, I'm. I'm also. I'm also a retired lawyer. So I can't get into the speculative kind of stuff. I need some evidence here. But, you know, it does seem a little strange, the whole thing. All those trips that he took and all this stuff that he went to, I don't know, the fun island or whatever the heck that was called. And he, But he didn't do anything, please. You know, stop treating me like I'm a child. You know, tell me the truth. Don't give me that contemptuous nonsense. So, uh, yeah, I'm with you, I, I, but I don't know. I, I can't – I'm not going to speculate. i got to have some evidence here. And I think it's out there. And that woman, what's her name, Jelaine, or what is her uh, – his boyfriend, Epstein's boyfriend? Yeah, she should her know girlfriend. everything well, he knows. Uh, she, she knows it all, and she's in she's, – uh, I'm sure that's what they're working on is some kind of deal to get her to start singing because there's prominent people I think are going to um, – be a little sorry they got in, in, tr- in touch with Jeffrey Epstein. 
All right. Um, it looks like, Curtis, we do have our next guest in on the line who's been okay. patient. Notice that uh, the, the phone number, because I was told he was not going to show up, but he is on the line. So, um, Dennis, your book is called A Basket of Deplorables, What I Saw Inside the Clinton White House that you co-wrote with Linda Tripp before she passed away. It is a great read, and there's a lot more in there to go into. So I'd love to have you back at another time. Um, fine. I'll have uh, the woman that does the PR work with the uh, publisher get in contact with you guys again. No problem. This right. is the true inside stuff. Most of the books that have been written are written by Clinton supporters who want Billy to look good and turn him into a victim. That's that's what most of that junk is out there. This is not. This is not at all. This is what Linda saw and why she got out of there. So, well, thanks, kids. Well, I have- Thank you, Dennis. I have a link to it on the show description, so when people listen to the show okay. later on in the archive, they can click on it and get your book. And they can click okay. on it right now and get your book anyway. Thank you, Dennis. God bless. All right. You too. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, let's bring on our next victim. And I have to apologize for leaving you on hold because I had a little communication mix up here. But I want to welcome on to the show Ari Hoffman. He's the associate but the teeth and backwards again, associated editor and correspondent for the post-millennial, also a frequent guest in media up on Newsmax, which I listen to often. Uh, welcome aboard, Ari, and how are you today? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Living the dream. <laughs> you know, there's so much to talk to you about. So much is hitting the fan. And, you know, I, I have to laugh because before um, – the this whole thing with Trump and now President Biden, you know, you could go through a news cycle and you may have two or three juicy things to talk about during the week, but you're getting hit with multiple items daily. How do you keep up? Oh, that's been a big challenge, actually, especially because now I'm working out at a radio station trying to do a show and I have a spreadsheet that I keep of every piece of news. And it's more for that. What do I want to talk about? What will my audience find interesting and what's relevant? And then what takes priority in terms of crazy? What's the most dangerous thing? What do people need to know about? And unfortunately, there's a lot of stories that are falling through the cracks that I still think are important. But there's so much crazy right now that it's getting harder and harder to prioritize, especially when so much of this seems to be who tweeted what, who said what in a video, who said what in an interview, rather than this is the policy they're doing. You've got to pay more attention to the actual stuff that's going on as opposed to the distraction show. Yeah, it, it, it is. It, it's like a Punch and Judy set. You know, <laughs> here comes the bat. You're going to get whopped with something else again. Uh, I had a laugh. I, I pulled this one out I, I, this because this item was just too hysterical. Um, because they had the impeachment of uh, President Trump, uh, seven senators, seven Republicans, and there was no surprise except for one uh, uh, voting. But he was acquitted. He was acquitted. And no sooner was he acquitted, Mitch McConnell, and I take the M off the front of his name, and I normally put a B there. Um, <laughs> so it tells you my opinion of him. Um turns around and then says some of the foulest things he could about President Trump. And then, unfortunately, on the heels of that, my former governor, Nikki Haley, does the same thing. 
So, of course, President Trump comes out a couple of days and pens a little missive to uh, Mr. McConnell, uh, criticizing him in some of the most (laughs) colorful formats. And then following the heels of that, this item pops up. X-Aid states, McConnell may never speak to Trump again. I swear I fell back in my Archie Bunker chair completely in full hysterics. Well, I think a lot of people are right now gearing up for what their next job is going to be. There's a lot of people who are thinking, hey, maybe I could work for CNN or MSNBC. And I think that may be something Mitch McConnell is doing. Also, a lot of people worry about their legacy. Let's think about former President George W. Bush. He was despised when he left office by the left. And now they have him on The View. Now they talk about him hugging Michelle Obama. That's what they do because people worry about their legacy. And as soon as the next person's in, they're off of demonizing that guy because he's not a threat anymore to them. So now it's President Trump. And the question is, if the person who follows President Trump as the leader of the Republican Party will get the same level of vitriol, was that unique to Trump itself? Because I just see it getting worse and worse for every Republican president. And I think that whoever comes next is just going to be, well, they're just Trump's follow-up act. And they're as bad as Donald Trump. In fact, they're worse than Donald Trump. They're a racist. They're a bigot. They're a xenophobe. That's what's going to happen. And that's unfortunately the new state of politics where it is. And some people are thinking, you know, I got to make some money after this. I got to have a living after this. How do I distance myself from that as opposed to saying, no, these are my principles. This is what I stood for. This is what I did. This is my record. This is what I said. And that's who I am. Well, it's also the establishment Republicans were finding, you know, the ones that kind of like were Sunday followers with Trump when he was president. But once he's out, it's easy to badmouth them to the point where Utah, the Republican Party in Utah is looking to censure uh, Mitch McConnell. They're going after you know, these establishment Republicans are saying you're not listening to the base of the party. We're more Trumpites than you really realize. Oh, I think you're right. But at the same time, what we all need to realize is that the infighting amongst the Democrats is not usually as public as what we're doing with the Republicans. Let's not forget that one of the possible contributing factors to us losing the Senate this year was because President Trump was so busy trying to prove his claims of voter fraud that he spent the whole time demonizing other Republicans. And a lot of Republicans didn't show up for that election because they just had enough at that point. So the thing is, is that no matter who's in charge, whoever's leader of the party, whoever it is, is we got to get on the same page because the enemy is not other Republicans. The enemy is the opposition, the people who want to destroy this country. And I'm not saying it's the Democrats. I'm saying it's the far leftists who want to impose communism, socialism, all that on the United States of America. And we're losing sight of the ball with this internal fight of who's loyal to Trump, who's not loyal to Trump, who's a rhino, who's not. I understand there's time for that. But right now, all we're doing is giving fodder to the mainstream media to show that the Republican Party is disorganized. And they're going to keep pointing to the Capitol riot as as if all 70 million people who voted for Trump took part in that riot that day. Well, you know, I I had I still have a Tea Party Uh, since 2009. I've been keeping it going. And I had our local GOP chair uh, to the party and I wanted him to explain how we need to stay united And as you said, you know, stop ripping it apart. Follow Ronald Reagan's uh, 11th commandment. Thou shalt not speak ill of a fellow Republican. You may work to uh, primary against them to replace them, but you do it the same way the Democrats do. If you don't like the person sitting there, primary them. 
but don't make it look like the party is split into two separate factions and then start to talk about a third party. The moment you bring in a third party, then for the next couple of generations, you're not going to see any Republican getting back into office. They're right, and I think Donald Trump actually made the smart move where originally they were talking about him starting his own party, and it seems that he's more loyal to the Republican Party than some of the other people out there who are now bashing the Republican Party because he probably realized, assuming he still doesn't go forward with that, is that that would destroy the party and that we'd never get another Republican elected again, just like you said. So it seems like he's actually the one who's thinking with more common sense than the people who are sitting there demonizing other parts of the party. And, I mean, he was doing it himself for a while. There's enough blame to go around to everybody here about why we lost the election and there's a whole bunch of things that are outside of our control about why we lost the election but at the same time the focus has to be 2022 the focus has to be 2024 and if we don't start laying the groundwork we're going to be just like second term obama wondering how did we lose so badly again you know you you mentioned about the election fraud and there was an article that i caught and the media is not reporting this at all um there was a Forensics done on a county in Michigan. And a matter of fact, towards the end of the show, I have a Hans von Spakovsky coming in, and I'm going to address this with him because this is what he deals with. They did a forensics on this one county, and they actually proved that the programming in the Dominion machines were the ones that it was deliberately programmed to switch votes. Uh, he had seven other forensics uh, 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 technicians with him, And they were able to leave with the evidence, but they needed a sheriff's uh, department to escort them and help them leave safely with that evidence on their plane. But no one's talking about this. Have you heard anything? I haven't heard anything about that, but let's not forget that we do have proof that a Georgia Dominion machine was switching votes, and it was small. It was a few thousand, but in a close election, that can make a difference. What I'm more concerned about is the stuff the Trump team didn't tackle. They were so busy reporting everything they saw on Twitter that they weren't paying attention to real allegations of voter fraud. For example, I was talking to a friend of mine who's a conservative talk radio host in Wisconsin, and he was talking about how the Democrat Party worked very, very hard to keep the Green Party off the ballot because they knew they would take votes away from them. And if you do the math on how many votes that typically equals up to, that's the election right there in Wisconsin. He was talking about how people were ballot harvesting in nursing homes. These are the things that people aren't looking into. In Washington state, we've had mail-in balloting for 10 years now. And this ballot harvesting issue is a huge issue and one that's been going on for a very long time. And here it's legal. So instead, what I was so upset about was that they were spending all this time going after the internet conspiracy theories and not going after legitimate claims of voter fraud that need to be investigated. And now I'm not sure they're ever going to be. No, I I don't think so. Matter of fact, here, even in the state of South Carolina, we do have legal ballot harvesting. An individual can collect up to 12 ballots. Now, there's certain protocols that have to be filed. You know, the person that's turning the ballot over, has to sign and say, yes, I'm relinquishing, I'm turning over my ballot. And there's a whole mess of things. So that we do have some safeguards. It doesn't mean that they're always followed. But, you know, you've got to check to see what your state is doing. And then make sure that your party, your Republican Party, has poll watchers out there. Uh, you know, it, there's so many things that we could do to safeguard these things, but When you have a liberal-run state and the polls are run 
the election cycle is run by a, the liberals and we're not the ones trying to take control of it, we're going to have more instances of this. Well, the other thing is also we need to play by the same rules. If they're ballot harvesting, how come we're not? If that's the rules of the game, then we should be doing the same thing. I don't like it. It stinks to high heaven. But if that's the rules of the game, then why aren't we playing by them? And that's why we keep losing. Well, you know, uh, President Biden, God, that really rolls off the tongue pretty hard, uh, has been out there, and they finally let him out of his cage. And now he's all these gaff prones. He did this uh, CNN town hall recently, and it was so bad that the New York Times actually fact-checked him. I mean, <laughs> what is going on here? You know, did you know my co-host, uh, Curtis, Curtis, did you know that you do not know how to get onto the internet and use the internet? No, I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's a great video. There's, there's a great video that you have to watch if you haven't seen it. The guy named Ami Horowitz. He's a documentary filmmaker, and he tears his stuff apart. He's on YouTube. You go check it out. He has a great video with referencing voter ID laws and all these Democrats saying that people in the African-American community don't know how to register to vote. So he went oh to and started interviewing people. You got to check it out. It's one of the funniest things I've ever seen. And he's interviewing people on the streets of Harlem. And he says, um, so do you know where to register to vote? The guy's like, yeah, it's over on 125th Street. <laughs> and they said, do you have a driver's license? And they're like, yeah, I got it right here. Why wouldn't I? I mean, this is this is absolute racism at its worst. These claims they make, and let's not forget, Joe Biden has a track record of this. His own vice president even called him out on it multiple times. And during the event itself, I mean, this was just such a gaff-filled disaster. I can't believe whoever let him do this should be fired. Whoever suggested he do it should be fired. If it was Jen Psaki or whoever, should just be fired because I've been mining this thing for stories all week. But the worst thing he said in my opinion, was that the genocide of the Uyghur Muslims in China was a cultural norm. I mean, how can you say something like that? It's it's as bad as the Holocaust, what's going on there, literally. And I'm saying that as an Orthodox Jew. People are being put onto trains, trucked in and trained into uh, concentration camps, and he called it a cultural norm. You know, when I heard that, uh, my chin hit the floor. Um, I've had Mitch Gerber on, who works a lot with, you know, getting the word out about what's going on with the Uyghurs uh, over in China. And uh, my mom, got, I talk about my mom a lot lately, uh, was listening to this and she's looking at me. And I said, Mom, she goes, who are these people that they're talking about? And I said, they're Muslims that live in China. Uh, what they do is they go into the villages, they round people up they put them on the trains and the buses they put them into concentration which are actually slave labor camps or they call them re-education camps to try to get them to drop their cultural heritage uh they rape the women and then they force sterilize the women and she's looking really is this what he's talking about this is what president biden is calling a cultural norm and you're right. The same thing that happened to the Jews under Hitler, going into the villages, rounding them up, throwing them to the concentration camps, forced labor, 
forced sterilization, or rape of the women, the very same thing. But this is a cultural norm. And this is the thing that nobody wants to talk about. Because here's something. We know that people say all the time, especially on social media platforms, oh, if I was alive during the Holocaust, I would have stood up to the Nazis. I would have stopped it. There's literally one going on right now. And the people who defended him, who tried to do spin on what he said, if any of them ever said something about, oh, I would have fought back, no, no. You're being complicit now. You probably would have been complicit then. If you are not talking about the tragedy that's going on in China, then you're as bad as the people committing it. And I know that somebody's going to get mad at me and say, how dare you say something like that? Why aren't people speaking up? Why aren't people saying this needs to stop? Why isn't the U.S. government taking a more active role? I'm upset that the Trump administration didn't do anything about it till the very, very end. On the flip side, they were pushing back very hard against China. But what could they do? It's not like we're going to go invade China. So what could they have done to stop it? I don't know. I was upset they waited till the very end to declare it an actual genocide. I was wondering why they didn't do it earlier. So there's enough blame to go around for everybody on this. But this is a tragedy of our time. This is awful, and it needs to stop. It absolutely is. You know, and uh, the funny thing is, is that people are just taking what mainstream media tells them to be the truth and swallowing it as the God-given truth instead of turning around and saying, wait a minute. Now, it used to be prior to the birth of the Internet, you, you would read different newspapers, you would watch different uh, TV news programs or listen to the radio and try to find out what the actual truth was before you accepted it. You know, you used to have people that were investigative reporters that would give you news, not opinion. Um, But today, opinion is news. Well, it's even worse than that. I saw a great political cartoon the other day where it's a husband and wife sitting at the dinner table and the husband's reading the newspaper. And she says, honey, why is the paper so thin? And he goes, because it's only got one side of the story. That's what you're dealing with these days. So it's not just opinion. It's just this is the only facts we want you to see. Oh, believe me, I just picked up my newspaper out of the mail, out of the box this morning, and I'm looking at it and going, oh, God, commie rag is at it again. It's like you read it while you're sitting on the toilet, and by the time you're done, you've completed the crossword puzzle. And that's the truth. But, you know, we have to – People like you and I and like my co-host and probably most of my listeners here, they do try to delve into what the truth is. And it's gotten so to the point where um, a local church, a Unitarian church, held this Love Thy Muslim Neighbor uh, seminar. Uh, They weren't too happy with me, Ari, because I showed up with Quran in hand. As a matter of fact, I read the Quran and had little post-it notes all over it. And the imam gets up to make a quotation out of the Quran. And it was one of the ones I had marked. And he talks about how the Muslims are friends with the the Christians and Jews, blah, blah, blah. And he reads just, he just recites the first part of the phrase. And he doesn't read, recite the rest of it. I stand up with Quran in hand and I said, Imam, you didn't finish the quote before the prophet Muhammad, meaning before the prophet was born, it was okay. Now that he was born, it's not okay. Oh, my God. You should have heard the uproar. Gee, you know, you would have thought I just set the room on fire. 
the um, when I was growing up, I had two Muslim friends um, who lived down the street, and we played video games with them. We played everything. Just because they share the same religion doesn't mean they're all the same extremists. You know, I spent a year in Israel in study, and I know what Muslim extremism looks like. I know what you have to deal with. I know what the safety concerns are, but it doesn't mean they're all like that. I mean, there's what, a billion Muslims in the world. The scary thing is, is when they throw out statistics like, oh, only 10% of them are radicalized. 10%, that's 100 million people. That's what you have to worry about. But I think that in this day and age, we have to worry about the people who are radicalized towards socialism, towards communism, that are attacking our very country right now, attacking the very things it was built on, trying to change our entire history, trying to make it seem as if America was completely systemically racist. I think these are the things we have to worry about more than anything else that takes precedence right now. That's what it has to be, because we may not have a country left anymore if these people are allowed to continue doing what they're doing. You look at what's going on with the education system, and we've done shows on the 1619 Project, the education system. Matter of fact, Sherry Few, who uh, is president of the uh, USPIE, United States Citizens, Parents Involved in Education, um, she's a dear friend of mine. She she and her husband and I share a drink every now and then. Um, there, There are groups out there fighting to take back our education system, but you look what's going on where they have them teaching the kids to recite the Shahada in class, uh, when they teach about white privilege, uh, when they teach about America was based upon slavery with the 1619 Project, when you've got Black Lives Matter going in and creating classroom curriculum. Yeah, it's a scary world out there for our kids. Well, that's why I think that this is an opportunity that the Republicans are blowing. What they should be doing right now is doing massive drives and massive campaigns to get people to pull their kids out of public schools. I mean, if somebody wants to start a fundraising opportunity right now, what it should be is send your kids to private school, send your kids to charter school, school vouchers, because right now the public schools aren't open. The private schools are. What is this? The CDC saying we need to do testing to see if we can send the kids back to school. I mean, Washington State is saying, well, we need to do some experimentation to see if we can send kids back to school. My kids have been in school in September. And they had, haven't had any outbreaks in the school because they've been following the guidelines. So at this point, anybody who continues to send their kid to public school either doesn't have the resources to send them somewhere else or agrees with what's being taught there. Because if you can send your kid somewhere else, you should be sending your kid somewhere else because at this point, it's 100% on you. Exactly. And with the previous guest, I said, the money should follow the child. The child should not follow the money. So if my tax dollars are going out and it's being allocated so many dollars per child, that child should physically get that voucher and go to the school of their choice. We've, I've got several private uh, schools around us, and they have been open from day one. You know, Thankfully, we've got a school superintendent that has been opening up the schools, and we've, we opened up a lot sooner than many other states. Uh, so... We've got to take our kids back. I was watching. Who the heck was I watching? Uh, there was. It was on Newsmax. This guy went out into a college campus and was asking what type of person would these girls be dating. Um, and you found that maybe five years ago, the girls tended towards someone like you, someone with the conservative values, strong family values, someone that's masculine. Uh, Instead, they're finding because of the education system now liberalizing these people, they're going for another federal fellow liberal. That's scary. 
Yeah, I haven't seen that study. I can't speak to it, but I do know that when you look in terms of the schools, the one game that they're playing is the reason that the politicians are now wanting to send the kids back to school, but the school unions are not, the teachers' unions are not, is because the politicians know that they get funding for every kid who's in school, and they see those enrollment numbers dropping. And they're very, very concerned that they're going to lose their funding. One of the games that they play is that they don't give in their final numbers of how many kids run the school until months later into the year. So what happens is they use the previous year's numbers when they're filing in September, and then those numbers get reconciled in October or November after they've already received the federal funding. They see those numbers dropping through the floor, and they are worried. Yeah. Uh, they are. You know, one of the things the pandemic did, it actually opened up a lot of parents' eyes to what the school system is doing. Um, and I, and if you have a parent like yourself that's saying, wait a minute, the public school is not teaching the kid the way I want the kid to be taught with the moral values and the level of education they knew, need to survive in life and become successful. You know, parents like you realize ah, the system's broken. It's not going to work. Let me find an alternative. A lot more parents are going, and um, uh, Lieutenant uh, Colonel Ray Moore was on the show recently, and he's saying he's seeing numbers that about 25 to 30 percent of the parents that pulled their kids out of public schooling and homeschooled will not return their kids back to public school. That's that's cheerful. That that, that gives my heart some hope. Yep, and uh, like I said, and with this, I'm going to have to head out. But, you know, they, this is an opportunity for the Republican Party. This is an opportunity for conservatives to say now we need to reform the schools and we need to get the kids out of these schools. And they should be having drives to raise money to send kids to private school to get them out of the public school system. I think you find a lot of people are supportive of that. I think you'd be able to find the funding for it. And I think you'd get a lot of people out of that system and save a lot of kids. Well, Ari, where can people find you? Sure, they can find me over on Facebook and Instagram at Ari Hoffman Official. They can find me at the Hoffather, and they can find my articles up on the postmillennial.com. And you said you do have to run. I did want to talk to you about political correctness because Joe Biden just recently said he's going to ban the phrase illegal alien, illegal immigrant. What else is next? Well, I mean, he can ban whatever phrases he wants. You're not going to change what words people use. So, I mean, what are they going to say, undocumented immigrants? What, what are the new words they're going to come up with? I mean, in the House, they already banned male, female pronouns and all that. And meanwhile, they're all breaking it left and right. Swalwell, Pelosi, we're going to start finding everybody. They can ban whatever they want. But we have a thing in this country called freedom of speech. And we can say whatever words we want, whether we agree with them, whether we don't agree with them, whether you agree with what I say or I disagree with what you say. That's why we have freedom of speech in this country. Good luck trying to ban verbiage <laughs> well you are so much fun to have on and there's so much more to talk about and we gotta have to have you back thank you anytime all right god bless and take keep up the good work ari all right have a great day you too all right ari hoffman check him out ari hoffman.org uh i have a link for him up on the show page so you can just click on it and check out his website check him out on twitter on instagram and everywhere else as well as uh the magazine that he is a correspondent and associate editor for the post millennial curtis what a fun show today quite so and it's right when you hear that um the Dems, they want to ban words and expressions because they don't like it. I mean, what do they think this is, a dictatorship? <laughs> 
Well, you know, um, I, I had mentioned earlier in the show that uh, we're doing a little bit of a change up today because of the lineup of the guests. And um, what the heck did I do? I'm missing a piece of paper. Oh, here it is. I got it. Um, so instead of doing the dedication at the start of the show, uh, we moved it over because we lost our one guest last minute, Dr. Bob Accord. Um, he had something else come up and he couldn't make it. He may be on next week. Um, so instead of doing the dedication at the start, we're going to do the dedication now. And everyone knows that just recently, a few days back, uh, Rush Limbaugh passed away. And um, hmm. I think maybe I ought to read the words so I don't screw myself up too badly because I was crying as I wrote this last night. Um, Rush Limbaugh, who was born in 1951, passed away just this past week, a radio host and political commentator. Today's show is dedicated not to a first responder or military fallen in duty or who served with valor and later in life passed. Today, we recognize those who serve our nation in other ways, and make a very marked difference in our lives and futures. From the humble Chicago citizen who defended our Second Amendment rights to the Supreme Court, to the woman who donned men's suits and doctored wounded Civil War soldiers in the battlefield, we honor them. Today, such a person is, while he had a big mouth, was in reality a quite humble man. No one can more eloquently do this tribute than his lovely wife, Catherine Adams Limba. I'll let her words, may God bless and comfort her and her family. Let me pull this up. I know that I am most certainly not the Limba that you tuned in to listen to today. I, like you, very much wish Rush was behind this golden microphone right now, welcoming you to another exceptional three hours of broadcasting. For over 32 years, Rush has cherished you, his loyal audience, and always look forward to every single show. It is with profound sadness I must share with you directly that our beloved Rush, my wonderful husband, passed away this morning due to complications from lung cancer. As so many of you know, losing a loved one is terribly difficult, even more so when that loved one is larger than life. Rush will forever be the greatest of all time. Rush was an extraordinary man, a gentle giant, brilliant, quick-witted, genuinely kind, extremely generous, passionate, courageous, and the hardest working person I know. Despite being one of the most recognized, powerful people in the world, Rush never let the success change his core or beliefs. He was polite and respectful to everyone he met. Even most recently, when he was not feeling well in the hospital, 
he was so appreciative to every single doctor and nurse and custodian and first responder. He never wanted to put anyone out and always thanked them profusely for their help. From today on, there will be a tremendous void in our lives and of course on the radio. Rush loved our miraculous country beyond measure, an unwavering patriot. He loved our United States military, our flag, our constitution, our founding fathers. He proudly fought and defended conservative values in a way that no one else can. Rush often stood up and took arrows on his own because he knew it was the right thing to do. Rush encouraged so many of us to think for ourselves, to learn, and to lead. He often said it did not matter where you started or what you look like. As Americans, we all have endless opportunities like nowhere else in the world. Rush gave us hope that through hard work and determination, we can overcome the obstacles in our lives and be our best. Many of you started small businesses or pursued personal dreams because Rush gave you the faith that you could. He made the most complex issues simple to understand while making that level of genius look easy. It most certainly was anything but easy. Irreplaceable, remarkable talent. On behalf of the Limbaugh family, I would personally like to thank each and every one of you who prayed for Rush and inspired him to keep going. You rallied around Rush and lifted him up when he needed you the most. I am certain, without a shadow of a doubt, if he could be here today, he would be. He loved you and he loved this radio program with every part of his being. Instead, we know our Rush is in heaven, encouraging us in the same way he always did on earth. Russia's love for our country and belief that our best days are ahead live on eternally. In Russia's honor, may we all continue Russia's mission in our individual lives and communities. I know all of you listening are terribly sad. We all are. I'm terribly sorry to have to deliver this news to you. God bless you, Rush, and God bless our country. All right. That was his wife, Catherine. Um, 
to this show we dedicate to Rush Limbaugh. We also dedicate it to all the patriotic Americans. Well, welcome, everybody. Oops, sorry. Uh, it's great to have you uh, with us today at Liberty University School of Business uh, today. Sorry about that. But it also dedicated to those quiet Americans out there every day working. You don't think of them as heroes. They're your neighbors. There's someone like the gentleman in Chicago who took to the Supreme Court to fight for our Second Amendment rights. The everyday Americans that stand forward to protect the Constitution. They don't wear uniforms. They carry the cloak of the Constitution with them. We dedicate the show to them. And we also do dedicate it to the men and women that serve, be they first responders or in our military. And we dedicate to them with this song by Jim and Jesse, God Bless America Again. Southern Sense live on Blog Talk Radio, up on Facebook, YouTube. Oh, good Lord, what the heck? Half a dozen different places. 
just go to the name of the show, a hyphen in the middle, southern-sense.com. All right, Curtis. Yeah, I'd like to say that um, I really wouldn't be here where I am today politically if it wasn't for Rush Limbaugh. And, um, again, excuse me for my voice. I think I got laryngitis or something. But anyway, back in um, 1988, I was commuting to the University of North Florida um, almost um, every day. And I lived like an hour away. So along the way, I would listen to the radio, something I think a lot of kids don't know exists these days with their iPods and things like that. But um, I tuned into um, the station because I, I heard this voice, this guy talking, and it was just something about his voice and the subject matter, which was um, politics. And I decided to hear him out. And um, I found myself listening to him um, every day as I, I commuted to um, school. And um, in time, I, I realized the things that this guy believed in, I believed in, you know, in other words. So I said, wow, I'm a conservative, you know, I didn't know it, but, um, <laughs> and that's only because when I was young, when I asked about politics, when I was a little boy, um, the, the generic response that you got from, um, the black community at that time was that the um, Democrats were for the poor and the Republicans were for the rich, but I never, I never um, was content with that, that answer. But listening to Rush um, opened my eyes to a lot of things. And then in 1980s, you know, CNN came on on the air, and that was the the first 24-hour news um, network. And um, I used to listen to the um, the shows like Crossfire, and, and shows like that that gave me a broader insight to what the political parties, you know, stood for. And the more I watched those things, the more I, you know, was armed with the knowledge that, you know, the Republicans were really the, the defenders of the Constitution and and the right to live and the protectors of our, you know, freedoms, things like that. While the liberals were all about, you know, subverting, you know, our Constitution and and our traditions and things like that. So. I have to say, I, I owe all that to Rush. Well, you know, he came in uh, to radio at a time when radio was dying. All you had were DJs. Very, very few were out there doing talk radio. And if they were, they would do psychic readings, talk about UFOs or strange things like that. Very few were doing actually public and uh, political commentary. Uh, he changed that. He showed that you can go from a small local station to nationally syndicated doing talk. And it opened the door for a lot, a lot of people you have out there now. Um, Dennis Prager, uh, Andrew Wilkow, and you can go on and on and on down the list of those. And actually, he actually gave the genre that we're using, the blog, the podcast, um, a boost because we saw that you could do this. And so now a lot of these talk show hosts are not only doing 
nationally syndicated radio, but they're also going towards podcasts to satellite radio like XM Sirius. Um, And there is, they found that they could get their voices out there. You don't hear a lot of liberal talk shows having great success, Alec Baldwin, uh, but you do find that those that are conservative have a higher view because we are more mainstream America than they are willing to admit to. And I think this is why lamestream media hates us so much because they found that people actually really do listen to us a little bit more than them. Like your ratings, um, Al Sharpton. (laughs) Oh, yeah. The the left radio shows, talk radio shows, they always fail because they're full of doom and gloom, never hope. And if you you listen to the rhetoric from the left um, when they campaign and things like that, um, take for instance, and this is this is a good example. Um, Biden, when he campaigned, he was saying that you know we we our darkest days were still ahead of us. Now juxtapose that to um, Trump, who said our best days are ahead of us. You know that it, it can be no more distinct than those two examples. And I always, always want to go with the person who sees the glass as half full instead of half empty. And, you know, to me, it's just as simple as that. You know, the differences between the two. They have to always scare their people, and that's why a lot of their people are still wearing a mask. And now I hear they're trying to double up on a mask, wearing two masks, just because their leaders tell them, you know, there's no scientific basis behind it. So, you know, it's... It's sad to say, but people do not think for themselves anymore. They've gotten intellectually lazy. Exactly. You know, it's easy to do a 120-character tweet uh, or a quick 60-second Instagram then to actually find out what the truth is behind the story being put out there. Um, Perfect example, Uh, New York City waitress, Uh, in Brooklyn was fired because she refused to take the COVID vaccine. And everyone's going, oh my goodness. She really didn't want that job. Wait a minute. Back up, folks. Back up. What's the rest of the story? Why is she refusing the vaccine? Now, I can tell you right now, I'm not getting the vaccine. I've got underlying issues that would preclude me put me in that class of people for the same reason why I cannot wear a cloth mask. I am not going to have that vaccine. Uh, The same thing with my husband. He's not going to have the vaccine. I asked my mom and I said, mom, my mom, she goes, no, I'm not going to get the vaccine. She's up there, but she has her reasons and underlying conditions. And I'm reading the story and I'm watching it on TV. And it's like, how dare she, you know, it's got to be, She's got to be an anti-vaxxer. When you read the rest of the story, she's not an anti-vaxxer. As a matter of fact, she encourages people to go get the vaccine. But she wants to know more about the side effects of it. She's young. She and her husband are actively trying to have a baby. And she wants to know what will the effects be. Will it prevent her from becoming pregnant? Or if she does become pregnant, would it affect the fetus? 
would have put that baby in jeopardy. So she wants to know more. She says, well, let me find out more about this before I say, yes, I'll go get it. She's concerned about her health, her husband's health, and her baby's health. Now, that's a very good reason. But simply because you refuse to take the vaccine does not mean you're an anti-vaxxer. But we need to know more. These vaccines have been rushed out onto the market. And a lot of these vaccines, and you think a vaccine is something to go in there and prevent you, it actually alters your DNA. It is gene therapy, a lot of these vaccines. So if it's going to alter her DNA, what will it do to that fetus? What will it do to the eggs in her ovaries? Will it alter the DNA and cause birth defects? other things could cause her to miscarry to know. So, well, you somebody know, just died the other day after taking a shot. It was all over the news. I don't think it was a couple of hours after after she took the shot. The uh, vac, you know, vaccine. She died. You know, I, I've talked to a lot of people that have gone and had both shots, and they talk about getting knocked on their butt. They get so sick immediately after the initial shot. And a lot of these are people that are healthcare professionals, physical therapists, nurse practitioners that come to the house to work with my husband and my mother. And I talk to other people that are out there that have gotten the shots, and they talk about falling very ill. And I had a friend of mine on Monday. He said, well, I had my initial shots. He went to Costco of all places to get the shot. They were giving him out at Costco. He goes, you know, um, I didn't feel exactly right afterwards. I felt like I was getting sick, and it lasted for about two days. And he says, after that, the only after effect I had was a sore arm. But, you know, you're putting something alien into your body and then making it mandatory. This hails back to what we were talking about, you know, coming into the time of revelations, the end times, the mark of the beast. Is this the mark of the beast (laughs) forcing us to have these vaccines? What's next? They're already talking about putting chips in you so that you can zoom past the uh, credit card swipe. You don't have to touch it anymore. Why not? Just put the, the chip in you. Oh, wait a minute. You don't need your passport anymore. We'll put a chip in your neck and you can just sail through customs. No problem. You know, these things are starting to you know, Annie, the left is always um, out there talking about a woman's right, you know, because it's her body and this and that and the other. Well, I feel the same way. You know, this is my body. You know, my I choice. should be able to decide what I want injected in me or not. I mean, this is still the United States of America with, a, you know, a bill of rights. And I'm going to um, go down to the very end. Um, fighting, you know, the other side about my Bill of Rights. I do have a right. So if you guys going to talk about a woman's right to abortion and or what they call, you know, choice, pro-choice, I'm going to be pro-choice too as far as um, what goes into me. Well, you know, here, here, this is the rest of the story on this young lady. Um, her name is Bonnie... Jacobson, and God bless her. She's she's a hero today. She is a hero. Um, 
the owner of the restaurant, Billy Durney. Uh, the name of the restaurant is Red Hook Tavern in Brooklyn. He stated to, uh, what is this? Uh, oh, the mail, which is out of Britain, that it was mandatory. He said he sent an email to all of his employees saying, you want to work for me? It's mandatory you get the vaccine. Well, the the mail, the reporter got a copy of that email. Nowhere in the email did it state that he said it was mandatory requirement for your employment. Now, I'm wondering how many different laws did he violate in making that statement and firing that young lady? She said she went through three different stages where she was upset and confused and then hurt, and now she's mad. And I hope she gets herself a real good employment attorney because it falls on two issues here. The HIPAA Act, now she has a health concern, and he has no right to ask her why she refuses. It would be in direct violation of the HIPAA Act. And it's punishable by up to 10 years in jail and a quarter million dollar fine for each violation. It's also in violation of the Americans with Disabilities Act. Should she become pregnant and that pregnancy she loses? So there's two different things, two different ways that she can go after him through Americans with Disabilities. But the HIPAA Act is the strongest one. And then through the employment laws, because she was suddenly fired without cause. He had urged them to get the vaccines, and she says, no, I, I'm going to think, I'm going to do a little bit more research before I commit completely saying absolutely yes or absolutely no, in which case he then fired her without just cause. So I think she's got herself a real good you know, case here. But, you know, if anyone is mandating you to take that vaccine, know your rights. Know your rights. But this is something that, you know, this show is about, to let to inform people, to let them know what is out there for them. Matter of fact, I'm trying to see if I have here on this computer, uh, is this what I'm looking for? The, the document that I normally carry around with me if anyone challenges me. Uh, let me see if this is what I'm looking for or if it's not. Because I created a HIPAA brochure. And if anyone wants it, they can always email me, and I'll be happy to shoot them a copy. Uh, no, this is not what I want. Oh, no, get out of here. Get out of here. That's not what I want. Come on. Oh, great. Now I got something up on the screen I can't get rid of. No, I don't want this. No, get out of here. Get out of here. Get out of here. Forgive me, guys. I'm not nuts. That's not what I wanted. Uh, Probably on my other computer. But I do carry around a little brochure I made stating that if I get denied uh, access to an establishment, and that is not what I want either. That is a shipping label. It's probably on my other computer in the living room. But again, if you want, you know, just email me through the website. I'll be happy to shoot you a copy of what I carry around that states the actual sections of the HIPAA Act and the Americans with Disabilities Act uh, with links to uh, where the establishment can go to verify what I gave them is, in fact, real. Um, 
So again, just email me through the website, Southern Sense, put a dash in the middle, Southern hyphen sense. I'd be happy to provide that for you. Oh, man. But Curtis, there's a lot more to talk about. We got, oh, yeah. Uh, we, we can talk about the, the stimulus checks that that were supposed to come like two days after um, he took the oath of office. And now they're, they're taking a break, I hear. You remember that? He was talking about once I get into the White House, <clears throat> the checks will be on, in the mail the next day. Now you got people out there still suffering, businesses still trying to hold on. Many of them are closed and never will come back. And these folks want to take a spring break until March. <laughs> well, let's bring our guest. Elections let's are over, so they don't care. <laughs> let's bring our next guest up on the show. I want to welcome once again uh, back to the show, Hans Von Spakovsky. Um we were going to have him on last week, and that was when my husband was supposed to have surgery and everything went flying up in the air. But he is, he's willing to come back and be a victim once again with this nutcase of a host here. Oh, Welcome back. Great. How are you doing? <laughs> Thanks for having me back. I appreciate it. I mean, things are heating up out there, and um, – I don't even know where to start with you. Uh, we've got Raphael Warnock and Stacey Abrams under investigation for voter registration misconduct. Gee, you think? We were screaming about this when she was running for governor, about her committing voter uh, misconduct. But finally, they, they said something's wrong here? Really? Well, there's all kinds of things that uh, apparently need to be looked at in Georgia. I'm, I'm glad they're finally in investigating it. Uh, there's, of course, other things they ought to be doing, like looking at the claims that were made uh, in the November election. Particularly, remember, there were, there were claims made that individuals who no longer lived in the state uh, had continued to vote and were still registered. I'm not sure any of that's been investigated either, but... Uh, I, I'm always happy when I finally see election officials and law enforcement officials investigating potential potential election fraud and election irregularities because all too often they just ignore it. You know, uh, someone asked me something the other day, and I did a double take because he made a statement, something to the effect that Biden is not officially a president until something like March 3rd or 4th. And up until that point, we can still overturn the election. Have you heard anything like that at all? Because you know election law better than anyone. Yeah, I'm sorry. I don't know where they're getting that. That's totally wrong. Uh, he became the official president of the United States when he was sworn into office on Inauguration Day, January 20th. So I, I, don't, know, I don't know who's telling you that, but that's just totally wrong. Now, what would happen if, through all these investigations, we find that, in fact, the, all these claims we had of election fraud, not all of them, but the vast majority of them, to be true, and that the votes actually really did go to Trump? What happens? Nothing, right? Well, nothing. Too, too late to do anything about it. And I'll give you an example of, of this. Uh, do you remember in 2008, we had the closest Senate uh, election, one of the closest elections in U.S. history up in Minnesota. 
And you'll remember that's that's the race where Al Franken was trying to unseat Norm Coleman, the incumbent Republican senator. Well, um, Al Franken, after litigation and a court fight, was finally declared the winner. And out of the almost 3 million votes cast in uh, Minnesota, Al Franken was declared the winner by 300 votes. Yep. Right. Well, sometime after that, a grassroots uh, election integrity organization in Minneapolis did something very interesting. They got hold of the state department list, and they compared it to the voter registration list, and they found that 1,200 felons, who had not yet had their right to vote restored, had actually voted in that Senate race. That's four times the margin of victory. So the number of illegal votes in that race was uh, four times the margin of victory. Uh, it didn't change the outcome of, of the race. We, we now know, you know what happened, but there was, by, that, by then it was too late. You know, well... Guys, you know, you may still think that Trump can return as president, but you better wait until 2024 because it ain't going to happen right now. You know, now there's another article that no one is talking about, and I just happened to catch caught it, and I did a little research behind it. And in Michigan, um, an attorney in Michigan, Matthew Dupronin, had been conducting an investigation in regards to the Dominion uh, voter machines. He went specifically to the county of Antrim, and he went with seven highly trained individuals that have experience in the IT sector, and they did a forensic investigation, and they found that, in fact, the the machines were programmed deliberately to change the votes. It wasn't human error. Have you heard anything about that? No, I can't say that I have, and I, I look, I haven't read about this, seen any, anything out of it. Um, I have a bit of a difficult time uh, believing that because I, I sincerely doubt that election officials there would give him actual access to the voting equipment. And I don't think that the company would give them access to the software. So I'm not quite sure how they could come to that kind of a conclusion. Well, supposedly he was granted access to the county building uh, and they completed the collection process in roughly eight hours. They found the evidence included 16 thumb drives, 16 CF cards, and a, motion, and a multitude of forensic images of the voting machines. They were escorted by the sheriffs to the local airport and allowed to board a plane with the evidence in hand. And this was reported in Newsmax. I would think that they would do a little investigation behind it to make sure it's factual. I wait and see what well, happens. Well, like I said, I, Eddie, I, I can't, I can't comment on it because I haven't. I mean, I haven't seen that report. I haven't seen the study, and I, I don't know any of the details of what they were able to to look at and review. So I, I just don't know the answer to that. No, I just lost my notes for you. Bear with me. I apologize. I've got papers up the wazoo. <laughs> Everything in fifteen different directions. Um. There's something else that I heard. Now, after the acquittal um, that we recently had, and everyone's happy about that, that the the Democrats, the senators, are going to try to invoke the 14th Amendment uh, and try to bar him from holding office again. Have you heard anything about them trying to attempt to do that? 
Uh, yeah, I have, I have heard that, but, um, uh, again, I just, I just don't think that, uh, they have any basis, um, for, for invoking the 14th amendment and, and doing that. And I suspect that if they tried to do it, um, uh, the, the president would have a pretty good, uh, case or lawsuit, um, that would end up in the U S Supreme court. And I think he probably would win. I, I sincerely hope so. Now you have a bunch of great articles up. One of them, um, I had a laugh, you wrote Biden must address conflicts of interest and concerns, uh, over his brother. And now his son, a lot of his stuff is coming to light. Um, <laughs> Is anything going, any sort of real, true investigation ever go on between the Biden dealings in the Ukraine as well as in China? Is anything going to be done or are they going to use the office of the president to stymie any investigations the same way the Clintons did? Well, the only thing we know, and we don't really know any details, is that supposedly uh, Hunter Biden is the subject of a U.S. Uh, Justice Department investigation over possible tax evasion and money laundering. Um, but we don't know the details. We don't know if that involves payments that he perhaps got from both uh, Ukraine and China um, uh, because the Justice Department isn't releasing any details of that. So, again, the, the, the answer is we, we, we don't really know. Well, if they do investigate him for the money laundering, um, it's got to come from somewhere. So I believe they're looking into what's coming out of China then. So would it then just follow back to him there? Well, like I said, he's had a lot of – my understanding is he's had a great variety of business business interest and business involvement. Um, and so uh, again, I mean, I just don't know the extent of the investigation. Yeah. Obviously it could potentially involve, um, fees and, and the contracts that he had, uh, in China, which we know he had and the contracts and fees that he was paid from Burisma, the Ukrainian energy company, but, uh, other than speculation, we we don't really don't know anything else because, like I said, the Justice Department hasn't released any details, and they don't. I mean, it's their rule; they do not release details of an ongoing law enforcement investigation. Well, there's so much more going on with those guys, and it's so sleazy. It just, I'm just surprised that. No, I shouldn't be surprised because, you know, it's influence peddling that we have with mainstream media and with the liberal left. And whoever's in power, they're going to go wagging their little doggy tails running behind them. Um, anyway, there's there's also other strange things going on out there. There is a uh, – uh, man, I am having a major brain fart. There is a representative that wants to have a truth commission. Meanwhile, we've got a new uh, U.S. Justice Department Civil Rights Division uh, head, Kristen Clark, also making troubling comments. We now are having calls for thought police out there. And it's civil rights for a handful of people, but for the rest of us, how dare we? To the point where even President Biden is going to ban the phrase illegal alien, illegal immigrant. 
Well, yeah, it should be troubling. I mean, the woman you're talking about, Kristen Clark, she's been nominated by the president to be the head of the Civil Rights Division. And I actually know her, and I've had um, many encounters with her over my years in Washington. And I can say without question that she is probably the most radical left-wing ideologue to ever sit at the head of the Civil Rights Division. And how how nutty is she? Um when she was at Harvard University, <laughs> she sent a letter to the Harvard Crimson, which is the student newspaper there, in which she asserted that she, at the time she was the head of the Black Student uh, Association, she asserted at the time that your intelligence, your intelligence is determined by your skin color, and that because mm-hmm. of that, um, that uh, black Americans are superior physically, intellectually, and spiritually to other races. Now, that is like something you would hear from a segregationist in the Old South in the 1920s, except with the races reversed. And yet this is the person with a view like that that has been nominated by the Biden administration to be the head of the Civil Rights Division. I I was so shocked at that. I I couldn't believe it. Now, I I think I may have read part of that article. Wasn't it having to do with the pigmentation of the skin, the melatonin? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I read that. That was really (laughs) weird. It it is. And this is also – Look, this is the same woman who got extremely angry last year and publicly criticized the Justice Department because the Justice Department finally did something about what has been going on that we all know has been going on, which is the Ivy League schools for years have been violating the Civil Rights Act by discriminating in their student admissions on the basis of race. Um, And last, last fall, the Civil Rights Division finally sued Yale University because they had uh, overwhelming evidence that Yale uh, discriminates against white and Asian students and discriminates in favor of black and Hispanic students, which is a clear violation of the law. She criticized that. She basically said the Civil Rights Act only doesn't protect white and uh, Asian voters. I mean, she she basically doesn't believe in the race-neutral enforcement of our anti-discrimination laws. And uh, to tell you what we're now facing with the Biden administration, um, about a week and a half ago, very quietly, without any press release, the Justice Department dismissed the lawsuit they had filed against Yale University. Unbelievable. Now, isn't she the same one that she said she would just not enforce fully uh, the Civil Rights Act of 64 and 65? The Voting Rights Act, yes. She got angry. There's test of sworn testimony before the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights that when she discovered that the Justice Department, this is during the Bush administration when I was there, um, the Bush administration filed the first ever lawsuit uh, down in Mississippi where a, they found that a local black official was discriminating against white voters. It was clearly going on. The black official was unashamed, uh, unashamedly proud of it. Um, eventually, a federal judge found him guilty of violating the Voting Rights Act. She wanted that case dismissed. 
because she did not believe that the Voting Rights Act should be um, enforced against uh, black or uh, other officials uh, and that discrimination going on against white voters is perfectly okay. You know, it's it, it is amazing. You know what they do to to alter the vote to a conclusion that they favor, not the true conclusion, but to the one that they imagine to be what they desire. But so we have such a, a messed up system in this election cycle. How do we turn around and have people regain faith in our electoral system? Well, I think one of the things that needs to happen is that, look, right now, state legislatures are meeting. They're, they're, uh, state legislators meet in the first quarter of the year. So right now is the time for them to pass amendments to their election laws. And there's a whole series of easy fixes that they could make, I think, to, to get us back into a, into a system where we can have confidence in the outcome of our elections. And uh, uh, Andy, I, the Heritage Foundation, we actually published uh, a best practices recommendation about two weeks ago that is a list of the fixes that uh, states should put in. And, and to just give you a, uh, a quick example, I mean, one of the things we recommend is every state ought to require a government-issued photo ID to vote, but not just for in-person voting, but also for absentee ballots. And we have a whole series of other recommendations there, again, to fix the kind of problems we saw in the, in the last election. Uh, another one to prevent abuse of absentee ballots is outlawing and banning vote harvesting in your state. In other words, should allow third-party strangers, you know, candidates, party activists, uh, campaign consultants, to go to voters' homes and pick up their absentee ballots. If you allow that, you are asking for abuse. I mean, you are, you are putting ballots, which are a valuable commodity, into the hands of people who have a stake in the outcome of the election, and you're giving them a ballot which they can alter or change or not deliver, and you're giving them the opportunity to coerce and pressure voters in their homes. So that's that's another change that states ought to make. You know, I had my Tea Party meeting on Monday, and this is one of the subjects that came up because um, we do have a vote harvesting here in South Carolina. You know, an individual can collect up to twelve votes, um, but here also in South Carolina, it requires voter ID. You know, some sort of officially issued ID. Um, it has to be a state issued ID. So you know. It is a frightening thing because when you go into these nursing homes, you have a lot of people that are no longer mentally capable. They have some form of dementia or whatever. So it's so easy to say, just sign here and I'll fill out the rest of it for you. You know, the potential for fraud of, or even intimidation, you can have someone come into a person's home and say, listen, old lady, I'm going to be uh, here every single day intimidating you and you've got nothing to do. I'm going to come in. I'm going to sit down in front of your TV, eat your food until you sign this ballot. I got you. The fraud potential is so great. Well, unfortunately it is, particularly in nursing homes. But again, that's the kind of thing where um, 
states can pass law uh, limiting and restricting the ability of uh, folks to be in nursing homes when it comes to the voting process, that is, party activists and candidates and people like that. And frankly, what a lot of states ought to do is require county election departments to have um, election officials go into and supervise the voting in nursing homes of absentee ballots to make sure that kind of thing doesn't happen. Now, look, South Carolina, yeah, it does have a voter ID law, but there are two problems with it. One, it doesn't apply to absentee balloting, as far as I know. And second, it has a huge loophole in it. Um, if If you sign a form saying, well, I had a reasonable impediment that kept me from getting an ID, you get to vote. And rather than doing that, what the state ought to do is, is there shouldn't be an exception like that. Instead, the state should say, look, if you don't have an ID, we'll provide one for you for free. And that would take care of any kind of problems anyone could raise about the difficulty of getting an ID or saying they can't afford it. Well, if I remember correctly, because we were going hysterical over this, uh, Nikki Haley, to prove a point, said, all right, you're telling me that they have an impediment to get the voter ID, or official ID. I'll tell you what, I'll have these buses and other conveyances available. We will come to your house. We will pick you up. We will take you down to DMV, and we will help you get a voter ID or a state ID for free. And she had all what? these vehicles things set up, and only a handful of people. We were told millions are going to be disenfranchised and only a small handful of people. It was hysterical. Yeah, that's exactly the same experience Alabama uh, had. Alabama also has a a good voter ID law, and um, they actually uh, appropriated the money to equip a mobile van that would go to the home of anyone anywhere in the state who said, I just can't can't get to an office to get an ID. The number of people who called took advantage of that was minuscule, and that just shows the the claims made by um, those opposed to voter ID. They always make these re- absurd, ridiculous claims that millions of people don't have an ID, and we all know that's not true. And in fact, the experience of states with ID laws has shown that that's just not true. Well, I show up in person to vote, um, and they always do ask for ID, and I've never seen them not ask for it and have someone present it. You know, you you need an ID to cash a check. You need an an ID just to go into a federal building or a courthouse. So what is the problem? I I, I just don't understand it. Well, there isn't one, really. And I'm afraid that those who are opposed to this – frankly just want to make it easier to cheat no matter what else they say about it uh because uh again this is this is a requirement that polling shows the overwhelming majority of americans support no matter what their political party is no matter what their race or ethnicity uh americans just all think this is a common sense requirement well there's also the same day registration for voting Georgia yes. has it. My sister just recently moved to Georgia. Uh, but people were actually visiting Georgia saying, hey, I just moved here. 
there's nothing to show that the, their address or anything and registering to vote. Now, she and her husband legitimately you know, moved there. So she said she had to show up with various pieces of identification and prove that she is a resident. But a lot of other places were registering them to vote and on the same day without asking for that documentation. This is a real problem. Oh, no, I agree. And in fact, um, uh, Democrats in, in the U.S. Congress, you know, want to force states all over the country to all put in same day registration. That's in H.R. 1, which is this bill going to be on the floor next uh, in a week or so uh, that they want to force through Congress. You know, the whole problem with same day registration, as you know, that that allows you to walk into a polling place on election day, register and immediately vote. And of course, election officials have no ability to check or verify any of the information you're giving them to make sure you're really a legitimate voter, that you really, really live there. And um, that's why it is a big problem and states are foolish Again, if they uh, if they put in same day registrations, a very unwise policy and and very dangerous. Well, there's something else that uh, did happen to her, which was really hysterical. Not really. I'm wondering how many people it happened to. They had moved from New York, and the fact that they moved and they had everything forwarded, they received absentee ballots in the mail. They received it the day after the election. But I'm wondering how many of those did New York State mail out to people that moved and people would then vote in whatever state they moved to, plus the absentee ballot. Here you've got another one where you may be registered to vote in your previous state and your current state. Right. And that is uh, that is a problem. Um, uh, the Public Interest Legal Foundation, I'm on its board. It's a uh, it's another it's a nonprofit group for some election integrity issues. Um, we actually uh, did some research uh, on uh, a number of states, and we found that in the 2016 and 28 federal elections, we found uh, over 14,000 people who voted twice because they were, in fact, registered in two different states. Now, I know someone had put up a um, a website. They created a website in which someone can turn around and see if they're registered in their old state as well as the new state. And I don't remember if I ever put it up on my page, um, but there is someone does have one out there. I'm going to have to see if I can find it and post it out there uh, for people to check because you can go onto it and click in the name of the state and then key in your name and your date of birth, and it'll tell you whether or not you are actually still registered to vote. And what I was telling my members was that, hey, listen, go onto this website, uh, check it out, and if you are registered to vote in your previous state, contact that election board and have them remove your name from the rolls, because that means that a ballot is being sent to your old home in your name, and someone else can use it. Uh, oh, no, that's very, very important. Um, in fact, it reminds me. Uh, um, some years ago, uh, I was talking to a friend of mine who had moved from Chicago to the District of Columbia when he got there. Uh, he, he registered to vote, and when he tried to vote on Election Day, he was told um, – uh, sorry, when he, when he uh, contacted Chicago uh, to try to get off the voter rolls uh, after, after the election had occurred in, in the District of Columbia, he was told, well – 
uh, why would we take it off? You voted in the, in, the, in the election here in Illinois. So somebody had taken advantage of the fact that he was still on the rolls in Illinois, even though he now lived in the District of Columbia, and had, and had voted a ballot in his name. That, that is scary. Because I was hearing from our local GOP chair, <clears throat> excuse me, that some people mailed in a ballot, but also went in person and voted. And that also is when you have someone voting twice, it's even just as scary. So anyway, Hans, it has always been fun to have you with us. People can find you by going to heritage.org and read your marvelous articles. And you also have there an election fraud link. Uh, where the people can see the stuff that you have actually proven to be true with election fraud broken down by states and everything else. And, hey, it's not everything that's happening out there, but you've got a really good sampling up there. Well, I appreciate that. And like I said, uh, the other thing they should check out on the Heritage website is our facts about election integrity and the need for states to fix their election systems, which has a long list. Now, here are the changes your state needs to make to uh, secure your election process. Absolutely. Absolutely. You do wonderful work out there, Hans. And I'm sorry we didn't have a, a show last week, but we're glad that you're with us today. God bless you, sir. Great. Thanks for having me. All right. Hans von Spakovsky. I love saying his name. It just slips off my lips um, <laughs> at heritage.org. Uh, we're starting to line up guests already for next week. Don't ask me who I have next week. <laughs> but we're starting already. Um, and hopefully Dr. Bob Record will be with us next week. Uh, that's what uh, his agent said she wants to try to do to slip him in next week. Um, anyway, uh, that's all we got for now, Curtis. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to try to get some guests on, too, for us. because I, I haven't because I've just been so busy trying to finish those novels. So I'll get back well, in I the race start, when it comes to that. Yeah, well, I started to put it up for next week, wherever it is. So just take a look because I put them in with the time slot and their name. And mm-hmm. then I'll later on build up. So I'll leave everyone with Gary Pecorella, Save America. Um, Thank you for hanging out with us, and I say good night. God bless. We'll be back here on next Friday, same bad time, same bad station. Until then, take care. Why I stand for the flag